Good morning, team. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. We've got a lot on the show this morning. We're going to be talking about lying later on. I want your lies. The psychologist says he, could, he, he knows when people are lying. There are telltale signs, and it's not the ones you would normally think. I want to get you to call in later on and try and see if you can lie to me. I think I'm pretty good at, at detecting when people are lying or not. Also, are you on the O2 phone network? I am, and I'm really annoyed with them. I think I can say... I wasn't, couldn't say what I was going to say then at 6 o'clock in the morning on the BBC, but... Their network has been down for thousands of people for about 14 hours... It's back on for some of you. It's not back on for me. Now, I know this is kind of an odd thing to say, if your phone isn't working, give me a phone call. But if your phone isn't working, could you give me a phone call, please? 08459 455 555. The point of this show, when I'm doing it, is I kind of like your phone calls. I kind of need your phone calls to get us through the next three hours. So make sure you jot down this phone number, 08459 455 555. And if there's anything you hear me wittering on about that kind of resonates with you, or you have a story to tell, then give me a call. Keen to get this breakfast show full of your voices, not just mine wittering on inanely. Now, shall we start? Why not? It'll be rude not to, because I know that Justin Dealey's outside waiting in the cold and is keen to get somewhere warm. During yesterday's show, we got a text from Mandy in Luton. Uh, she wants to know why the big neon signs warning drivers about delays during the Love Luton Festival weekend are still switched on. Where are we now? Is it Thursday? They're still on. Still blazing away this morning. Uh, we have sent Justin Dealey out there, who stood right next to a sign. Now, Justin, whereabouts are you? Oh, Justin, you're there. Sorry. Hello, Justin. Oh, no, you're not there. Look, hang on a minute. I need to... Uh, um, oh, where is Justin gone? Justin has disappeared. Justin, are you there, sir? Hello, Ian. I do apologise, Justin. It was... <laughs> I'm, I'm going to blame it on you. It was your fault. It's all my fault. For not being where I expected you to be. Whereabouts are you now? Um, I'm standing by the M1, um, Junction 10, of course, uh, the gateway to Luton, and I can see one of these signs, uh, probably a good uh, 20 foot in the air, these signs, uh, very large uh, neon signs, as you say, and it still says the Love Luton Festival, 6 slash 9 July, uh, delays expected, and they, of course, are not just here by the M1, they're on all the uh, the major roads into Luton and people are asking the question well why are they still there it's like going into a time warp of course uh, <laughs> the festival was last weekend yeah. why are they still there uh, Mandy says that it, it makes the town look bad to visitors having out of date signs it doesn't look great, does it? No, I've got to be honest with you. I was driving into work this morning. I had a, a day off yesterday, drove in, and it was one of the first things that I noticed uh, coming into Luton today. Why is this sign still here? It just makes the town look a bit out of date because the festival was great. Uh, we know that much, of course. We had uh, Ollie Murs. We had The Wanted, and, of course, on Monday, we had The Torch in Luton as and well. And despite Ollie Murs, it was still great. <laughs> <laughs> apparently so, apparently so. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, all, all that excitement, it's been and gone. Um, so... 
why are the council just uh, a bit out of date on this one? We don't really know. Can you see, how are they powered? Can you see, is there a generator there or what, what's the deal? Well, they appear to be solar powered and I'm pretty grateful for that actually, Ian, because I had visions of you saying to me, well, go and unplug the thing. And, uh, <laughs> and I would have done, sir. Yes, I would have done. Blown up on the radio. I've been watching a, a TV show recently called uh, Curious and Unusual Deaths, which I didn't <laughs> want to be part of. Why, Dustin, sorry, why are you watching a programme called Curious and Unusual Deaths? Very interesting. And, know, and, and what channel is it on, please? Uh, it's on the uh, Crime Investigation Network. <laughs> uh, listen, sorry to go off on a tangent, but this is, I'm going to. Uh, uh, this is the second time in a week I've heard about this um, this TV channel, and I, yeah. boy, I'm going to hunt it down. It's I'm hunting it down. I'm getting my VHS out. I'm recording everything off of there. I don't want to be on that show, so... Um, <laughs> but so it's solar panel. Well, that, that's something then, because I, I was going to say, you know, the, the, the Love Luton Festival did cost a lot of money, about 300 grand, and if they were spending more money on, on powering these things, that would be a little bit naughty. Uh, but it, d- d- surely all it takes is for someone to come down and switch it off. Yeah, yeah, you certainly expect so. I mean, I've actually seen these signs before at Wembley Stadium. Whenever they have a, a big game at Wembley, what they do, they roll out these signs and they put them outside the stadium and they may say, for argument's sake, loosen sound supporters this way. Yeah. And they'll put a big arrow there. So as soon as the game is over, they remove them. Um, simple as that. So I'm not quite sure what sort of deal the council have got. Um, if they're solar panelled, that's one thing. But all it takes is for somebody to pop along and simply take them down because it is quite confusing. People coming off the M1, uh, looking at these signs, thinking, well, what's this Love Luton Festival then, which is happening on the 6th of July? That Surely that's been and gone. Justin, listen, you've got to shoot off all over the area this morning. I shall let you go. Thank you very much. There's Justin Dealey, who's out by those signs. Listen, listen, I know in the great scheme of things, it's not that important, really. It's not, it's not the biggest deal in the world, but... It's these small little things, isn't it? It's these little things that kind of make a community just feel a bit cheapened. Someone from Luton Council, I know there'll be someone listening, can you give me a call? 08459 455 555. Tell me what's going on. And then just send someone down there today to switch them off. And while they're switching them off, when you come off that Junction 10 and come round that roundabout, you've got one of those big plastic banners advertising Love Luton Weekend. Take that down. Switch the machine off and take the banner down. That's all you've got to do. I'll say nice things about you if you do. Morning, team. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio Breakfast. Now, what was happening to the weather yesterday? It just kept changing every 20 minutes. It was torrential rain, then it was brilliant sunshine and boiling hot, and then it showered a bit, and then it was cloudy, and then it snowed. It was... I'm going to be turning on my phone in a few minutes. I'm not supposed to have a phone on in the studio. You're not really allowed to do that. But I'm, I, I'm so frustrated and indeed annoyed that I've got no phone signal that I'm just going to keep ch- turning it on to see what's going on with that thing. If you are with O2, uh, I don't want to completely bash O2. We're trying to get someone from them to come on the show and have a little chitty chat with us. Um, that we're struggling. Can't get through to them. Yeah, there's a thing, isn't it? Uh, but if you are with them and you're having problems with your phone, 08459 455 555, it sounds like it could be a vaguely flippant thing. But I bet if you're a small business and you're dependent on that phone, uh, then you're going to be losing money, aren't you? 08459 455 555. You can text as well. I know. It's ridiculous, isn't it? 831 
uh, and start your text 3CR, or you can email 3CR at bbc.co.uk. Meanwhile, it's time to get the latest travel news now with Sophie Tyler. Beds, hearts and bugs news. BBC Three Counties Radio. The headlines this morning on BBC Three Counties Radio. Police in Hertfordshire are investigating the theft of another Henry Moore sculpture, this time worth up to half a million pounds. The 1965 sundial was taken from the grounds of the Henry Moore Foundation in Much Haddam, Moore's former home. More than 3,000 soldiers, some just back from Afghanistan, are being put on standby for security at the Olympics. The private contractor, G4S, hasn't recruited and trained enough staff in time for the start of the Games in a fortnight's time. In sport, British sprinter Adam Jamili warmed up for the Olympics by winning gold in the 100 metres at the World Junior Championships in a new personal best of 10.05 seconds. We'll have a full weather bulletin in a moment. And coming up on the show, a service for people in St Albans with HIV and AIDS is under threat. Hertfordshire County Council have cut funding to the Crescents and are giving the money to Hearts Aid. We'll hear more about that shortly. Across beds, hearts and bugs, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. Morning. Now, a service for people in St Albans with HIV and AIDS is under threat. Hertfordshire County Council have cut funding to the Crescent and are giving the money to Hearts Aid, another organisation near Watford instead. But people who use the Crescent say Watford is too far to travel and doesn't have the same privacy, as its services are shared with mental health patients. Our reporter, Sophie Solari, has been down to the Crescent to find out more. <laughs> I'm Paul Meaton, um, I'm the branch organiser at the Hertfordshire County branch of Unison. Um, I believe there may be vested interests in the committee that scrutinises this and looks at the funding and how it's allocated. Some of the decision makers are on the board of Hearts Aid, which are, is the alternative organisation that's been given the contract for Hertfordshire. Our vested interest is also in the staff here, because obviously the staff here are Unison members, and that, that's our main core business. But Unison in Hertfordshire always will promote what they see as an ethical and, and good social enterprise which helps people in need. And it would appear that our political masters don't agree with that. So what are you, and indeed Unison as a whole, going to do to help this situation? Right, we, we've asked pertinent questions um, to the County Council, and, and we've been effectively given you know a blank answer a very very glib answer what we are doing is ourselves as an org- local organization is looking to potentially um invest in the service not to the scale that's needed to keep it so keep it open so we can provide a sexual health testing service to our members should they should they need it so we're, we're putting our money where it, our mouth is but it's not enough to keep it open did Hertfordshire County Council do this without consultation yes. to the relevant trade unions? Yes, they did. We have a recognition agreement with the Crescent. It's a formal recognition agreement for the purposes of collective bargaining. And in law, the County Council should have consulted both us as well as the employees and the organisation of the Crescent. They didn't either. The funding was withdrawn, very short period of notification, and the service, or the funding for the service, was allocated to Hartside. I believe, well I know, that the um, County Council's own processes require that any contract over £90,000 should be put out to a competitive tendering process. That never happened. The Crescent were never given the opportunity to state their case and how they could provide services and at what cost they could provide those services. So the whole process was flawed, very underhand, and we, we don't know why. 
even though we raised these concerns with the county council, they've chosen to um, stand by their original decision. Hello, Sophie. I'm John. Let's go and sit down somewhere quiet. Hello, I'm John Sessions. I'm an actor. I spent a lot of my formative years in St Albans. I was contacted by Chris Renard, a Liberal Democrat peer, who has been trying to do things in a larger scale regarding the Crescent. I met Ian at uh, the uh, House of Lords, where I was put in, the, put in the picture, as it were, regarding the very dire straits they're in. John, actor, comedian... Why have you taken on defending the Crescent? Well, it, it sort of landed in my lap, really. It, it just seemed uh, seemed appropriate. I'm trying to help at the moment. I'm trying to contact various people who um, are in a position to stump up the money, quite bluntly. Let's not skirt around that. That is what it is all about. It is about getting £200,000 a year to keep the Crescent open. So do you see the only way forward for the Crescent is if you find people to fund it as opposed to get the money from the council now? As things stand, I think it is safest to assume that external money has to be the only way. What will happen if it has to shut down? Worst case scenario, what do you see happening to the service users? Well, the service users will, in some cases, in very bad desperate cases fall into the badder ways. They are drug users, they will use dirty needles. If they're homosexuals, they will indulge in unsafe sex. If they're haemophiliacs, they will become progressively more unlucky. So it's pretty urgent. It's very urgent. uh, The money is needed within three weeks. Sophie Solaria there talking to John Sessions about the Crescent. And later on in the programme, we'll hear more from other service users and speak to the Council's Cabinet Member for Health and Adult Care, Colette Wyatt-Lowe. Don't forget, if any of these stories affect you this morning, or you just want to have a comment on them, and I bet you might, some of you want to talk about that, 08459 555. Beds, hearts and bucks, weather. BBC Three Counties Radio. Let's get the weather now with Dan Holly. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Yeah, lovely start to the day. Lots of sunshine out there. Well, you say lovely start to the day, right? Yep. What, what on earth was going on yesterday? It was mental. It was, wasn't it? It was every <laughs> 20 minutes we were in a different climate. I know, yeah, yeah. Uh, as uh, Alex Dolan described it yesterday, it's like a hormonal teenager, uh, the weather yesterday. Ooh, what an unpleasant image. Can I know. Let's <laughs> carry on with today, please. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. It's Spender and Ain't No Doubt. It's weird to think that Jimmy Nail was a pop star for about 20 minutes, isn't it? I was in an episode of Spender. That's a true story. That's a true fact. That's a fact. Coming up, we're going to be talking about lying. If you think you're any good at lying, could you give me a call? This is what I want you to do this morning. We're going to hear a report in a bit about how you can tell if someone's lying. Apparently, it's all in the voice. So what I want you to do is I want you to phone me up with a true statement and a lie. A true statement and a lie. And I will use my lie-detecting skills to tell you which one's the liar. I think I can do it. 08459 455 555 is the telephone number. 08459 455 555. You can also text as well. 831 Start your text 3CR or you can email. 3CR at bbc.co.uk. Time now to get the latest travel news with Sophie Tyler. 66 degrees Fahrenheit. Thank you, Simon. Oh. Hearts and Bucks Sports. BBC Three Counties Radio. Simon, please carry on with the sport. I can only apologise for interrupting you. How no, rude of me. No problem. We <laughs> start you. we start with golf. Next full bulletin at seven. 
Now I shall interrupt. That, the only reason I was so keen to interrupt there was I went to play Fleetwood Mac. I, I just couldn't resist having little eyes. Who can eyes. resist Fleetwood Mac? Thank you, Simon. You're very patient and it's appreciated. Uh, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Breakfast, 08459 455555. Are you a liar? Good morning, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Breakfast. We'll go through your newspapers in a bit, the front pages. They've just been delivered. And success, dear listener, you'll be happy to know I've just turned on my phone, which is verboten in uh, the studio world. And it is working. For the moment, I have the phone signal, and indeed I have what is, I believe is called the 3G. I'm never quite sure what the 3G is, but that means I can get my emails. So it's working. If you've been affected by the O2 um, breakdown, I guess, we still don't quite know what's wrong. They were tweeting yesterday um, saying that there was a problem and their engineers were working on it. It went on for a long time. That's about 14 hours, I think, 15 hours. If you were affected by it, if you're still affected by it, could you give me a call and let me know? 08459. Four double five, five double five. If you're part of the company, as well, I, I don't want to knock them because I've been with them and they've been excellent generally. It, but pretty poor show the last day or so. Very little said about what the actual problem was. If you do work for O2, could you give me a call and let me know what the problem was, why the whole network was down, uh, and then why some areas were affected worse than others? I'm curious, and I want to know it won't happen again. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. There's been quite a few of these technical. It's kind of like the Millennium Bug. Do you remember the Millennium Bug that never happened? How aeroplanes were going to fall from the sky and, and, and cars were going to smash into the road and ovens were going to blow up and things like that uh, at the turn of the Millennium didn't happen. But this is kind of like that. We've had um, uh, BlackBerry. I think last year went all pear shaped. NatWest the other week. Royal Bank of Ulster. I think is still. Well, it won't be the Royal Bank, but the Bank of Ulster is still um, skewy, I think. Is technology... Is this, this is how Terminator started, isn't it? The movies. 08459 455 555 is the phone number. I also want to talk to you about lying, because a psychi- psychologist from the University of Hertfordshire is contesting some age-old theories about lying. It's thought that if someone moves their eyes to the right, they're telling a porky, but if it's to the left, they're telling the truth. But Professor Richard Wiseman from the University of Hertfordshire says it's all in the voice. If you're a liar, you can also give me a call. I want to be able to see if I can tell whether you're lying. 08459 455 555. We sent our reporter Serena Farrow out, and she's been speaking to hypnotherapist and psychotherapist Mark Vasey about the psychology of lying at his clinic in Nebworth. It can be a habitual lying. Uh, there are things such as compulsive liars. We all know compulsive liars who will lie even when you know it's completely different truth. They'll swear blind that what they're telling you is correct. And there's pathological lying. Sometimes uh, pathological liars would be someone who have an organic reason to lie. In other words, uh, the frontal uh, lobe of the brain is responsible for our decision-making and our sort of moral judgments. That part of the brain, therefore, in cases of people who have had damage, brain damage, will affect their decision to make, you know, their decision making. So you take Fred and Rosemary West, who were singly unpleasant. Fred West was in a motorbike accident, I believe, uh, in his 20s that caused frontal lobe damage. That would have damaged the part of his brain that's responsible for decision making in terms of lying. So he um, he was probably less aware of the moral implications of some of his acts. 
Whereas Rosemary West would have been, you know, very conscious making the decisions. So there's a big difference there. Obviously, she was probably, you know, would be a lot more evil, if you want to classify as evil, than, say, Fred, who had an organic reason for that. But a lot of it's based on self-esteem, in my experience. Because if we've got low self-esteem, we feel lousy. Low self-esteem is a trigger for many, many psychological problems. So people often are lying to increase their self-esteem, saying, oh, yes, you know, I've got a fantastic job and that's why I'm driving this, this uh, you know, I know, Bentley. And do you believe in the whole looking up to your right, to your left malarkey? No, not, 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 not at all. Um, there's people that suggest, you know, body language experts who can read it and they make a lot of money out of saying to people, we'll teach you how to do these things. Most decisions are made subconsciously in a fraction of a second. So what I'd call a thin slice of decision-making, that first nanosecond when you meet someone, is often the correct one. So, so if someone's saying something to you and you suspect they're lying, there is something at a subconscious level that you're picking up on. And it, it may or may not be right, but certainly if you start looking for mechanical reasons, e.g. they look to the right, they must be lying... Well, I know plenty of people that, 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 that might look up to the right because, you know, something catches their eye or look down to the left or they might shift or look nervous. But the real reasons for looking shifty or looking nervous is not necessarily lying. It could be social phobia or social anxiety. That is the single most common phobia that we would see in the clinic, social anxiety. People don't want to look you in the eye. People will look nervous. They act nervous. And these poor people are getting accused of maybe lying or being you know, un- untrustworthy when, in fact, they're just socially anxious. Uh, what I want you to do, dear listener, is I want you to prepare two statements for me. I didn't say it was going to be easy listening to the show. You're going to have to work. Two statements. I want a lie and a factual statement. And then can you give me a call? 08459 455 555. And I will see if I can tell from your voice. A factual statement and a lie. 08459 455 555. And we'll, we'll see if we can work it. I am an awful liar. My wife. No, I can't keep a secret from her because she knows instantly. Uh, a couple of years ago, my wife's half Greek. And a couple of years ago, I went to have secret Greek lessons. So that uh, at Christmas, uh, her and her mum would be jabbering away, which I believe is the technical term for speaking Greek. And I would jump into the conversation and, and, and join in. And they'd be like, whoa, you speak Greek. But they'd say it in Greek. Ah, Milaelinika. So I was going off once a week for these secret sessions. And I would say, my, my job is kind of, you know, I kind of go out for a few hours and then come back and uh, at different times. And so I'd say to my wife, oh, I've got a voiceover. Oh, I've got a meeting in town. Oh, I've got this, I've got this, I've got that. She knew straight away I was lying. And I would come home and she would say, how did your voiceover go today? Uh, yeah, well, ma. Okay. What was it for? And she knew. And after a couple of months, I had to tell her that I was going to have these Greek lessons because she thought I was cheating on her. So I had to come out and be honest. Is, is your, I would suspect that women are better at detecting liars than men. Is that, is that your... Reckoning, is that what you've discovered? 08459 455 555. I want to know uh, if I can tell whether you're lying or not. And also, what is the best lie? I, I want to hear your lying stories this morning. We can embrace this, I think, at the BBC. 08459 455 555. Time now to get the latest travel news with Sophie Tyler. Beds, hearts and bugs news. BBC Three Counties Radio. Here are the headlines this morning on BBC Three Counties Radio. Police in Hertfordshire are investigating the theft of another Henry Moore sculpture, this time worth up to half a million pounds. The 1965 sundial was taken from the grounds of the Henry Moore Foundation in Much Haddam, Moore's former home. 
Four members of a Bedfordshire traveller family who forced destitute men to work as modern-day slaves will be sentenced today. A decision will also be made about the charges when no verdict was reached, with a retrial possible. In sport, the world number one, Luke Donald, begins the defence of his Scottish Open golf title today. The Buckinghamshire player is using the event as part of his preparations for next week's Open Championship. Hertfordshire's Tom Lewis, who starred in the Open last year as an amateur, needs a top-five finish in Scotland to qualify. And your weather across beds, hearts and bucks, staying dry with sunny spells but turning cloudier during the afternoon. Outbreaks of rain will arrive this morning, uh, this evening, excuse me, top temperature around 19 degrees Celsius. And coming up on the show today, because of the current recession, you've probably noticed a growing number of shops that are standing empty in the high street. We'll hear about a new scheme called Startup, which aims to help fill Britain's empty premises. I'm looking for liars. Is that you? 08459 455 555. Or maybe you can always tell when your husband's lying. Give us a call. Speak to you after the Eagles. Good morning. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Breakfast. It's nearly eight minutes to seven. Now, you've uh, probably noticed a growing number of shops standing empty in the high street. The recession and rising rents have forced many shops out of business. A new scheme called Startup Britain is being launched to help towns fill empty premises. Retail expert Claire Rayner from St Albans can tell us more. Claire, what exactly is Startup Britain? Well, Startup Britain's been going for a few years, but actually what their scheme is called is Pop-Up Britain. And Pop-Up Britain is about creating um, places for new startups and online-only retailers who just can't afford to take out a whole shop unit by taking a large space in a town centre and then subletting that space, I guess, on a small short-term basis two weeks at a time to businesses who want to test the water to decide, well, can I sell my products here? Are people in this community even interested in what I've got to offer? And hopefully, in that test period, they'll learn enough to be able to make the big leap to taking on a full-size shop of their own. So they're opening for two weeks at a time. Can they make any impact in two weeks? Will people notice them in two weeks? Well, the shop will be there permanently. Okay. It's just the traders inside get two weeks to test the market. And obviously they can extend that, but the initial period, they come in for two weeks, they take a proportion of the shop space, they present their products, and hopefully customers come and have a look, because obviously there'll be lots of variety, we're changing all the time, so it will create a point of interest as well. And over that period, those people will be able to, the people within the shop, will learn, are they right for the local community? Do we know what kind of businesses will be in these shops? Have we had any names yet? Well, the first one launches in Richmond on the 23rd, and that's going to be sort of the model for the rest of the country. Right. And at the moment, I, it's a closely guarded secret. Oh. It's going to be a big wow to Oh, secret, so I see. It's like that, is it? It's very nice. But then, if the model's successful, it's something that Startup Britain, who are behind this, intend to roll out across the UK to towns where landlords and councils are amenable to this kind of uh, pop-up shop, because... A barrier to small businesses starting out is the long-term rent, mm. the fact that people want you know, sustainable long-term shops. And, of course, if you're starting out, you don't know if it's going to work. You need to have this test first. You don't want to sign a five- or ten-year lease without knowing that it's going to be good. And it would, it would seem it's a good idea, because I know that in Beds, Hearts and Bucks, there are lots of empty shops. And uh, it, on, a, on a simple basic level, it doesn't look good for the high street, does it? Yeah. 
it doesn't and not only are there lots of empty shops there are lots of fantastic smaller businesses i think we've got the highest density of small business owners in the country in this area and, and so with that in mind if we can create an environment where they can create a physicality of presence and not just have to depend on online sales it could be a real boom for our business owners i was going to mention the online thing because i i, I would imagine that if, if if someone is thinking of, of setting up a business that sells a product whatever that may be that most of them aren't going to look at premises now are they they are going to maybe start on ebay or set up their own website and do something like that aren't they is that is that affecting the high street well actually i think that whilst they do that because it's a lower cost of entry in terms of commitment levels than perhaps taking on a shop they do prefer to have a shop because Mm. as customers unless we're buying a commoditized product something that we can absolutely understand and it doesn't really matter it's not a personal choice then um, we're happy with online but we like to shop physically and see the product and work to meet the shop owner and so on. So whilst we can transact our order online, it does help for us to be able to see, touch, feel and experience products. Here's the thing I don't ever get, Claire, and my wife does this and I was shocked. She buys clothes online. How can you do that? You need to go and try them on, don't you? Well, we're very fortunate. Some of the big retailers offer extremely favourable returns policies. So if you don't fancy shopping, queuing and standing in the changing room with a lot of other people, you can order online no. and send it all back. It's crazy. It's crazy. Are, are we as good as a country at helping small businesses? Oh, I, I'd, I'd say that we like to think we are. But in my experience, and I own small businesses, Mm. I don't think we get quite as much help as we need. But then you have to wonder, how much help can you give before it becomes unfair to the big businesses? So it's a very difficult question, that one. And and finally, why are high streets failing at the moment? Because they are struggling, aren't they? Yeah, I think this is uh, an example of the consumer voting with their feet. High streets over many years have become almost identical wherever you go. And landlords have perhaps got a little greedy with upward-only rent reviews, and it's resulted in in two things happening. The big retailers have come to the end of their lease and thought, this isn't favourable, I might as well move out of town or take my business online. And because they're a very well-known brand, they can do that. It's easy. Then you get the smaller retailers thinking, I can't afford to move in there because the rents and the rates have increased so much over the years. And it actually has created a bit of a downward spiral. And it's projects like Pop-Up Britain that hope to break that mould, to begin to create a change and a wave of a a difference to the high street. I remember the excitement when one of the, I can't remember which one it was, one of these big um, shopping malls opened up in London and everyone was there and it was a huge day. And I didn't see the point of being excited. All it means is that Gap is next to Boots, which is, you know, it's the same shops and there are fantastic shops, but they're just the same shops, just in a slightly different order. Listen, uh, Claire, I think that the the Pop-Up Britain sounds a fantastic idea and I wish it the very best of success. That's Claire Rayner there, who is a retail expert from St Albans talking about a scheme set up by Startup Britain called Pop-Up Britain, where little uh, shops, boutiques will open up in, in premises all around, well, starting in Richmond, but hopefully all around the country. Hopefully in beds, hearts and bucks soon, because you I don't need to tell you, do I, that there are loads of prime locations that are empty. And it's it doesn't look good on the high street, does it? 08459 uh, 455 555 is the telephone number if you want to give us a call. I'm still looking for someone to call up uh, and be a convincing liar. We are we are we're not celebrating the magic of lies. That would be inappropriate and would would probably go against all of the uh, the BBC rules and regs. Uh, but if you can, uh, if you're a liar, if you've got any stories about lying, 08459 455 555, you can text as well, 83133, uh, start your text 3CR, or you can email 3CR 
at bbc.co.uk. Should we have a little look at the front pages of the newspapers? Why, why on earth not? I'm lucky that in this pri- privileged position, uh, I get all the, the newspapers sent to me. Um, so we've got the front page of The Guardian. Oh, my goodness, look at the state of them. The Rolling Stones <laughs> mark the 50th anniversary. We'll be talking about the Stones a little bit later on. It's their 50th anniversary. Look at the state of them. Can I be honest? I never really got the Stones. They did three good songs. I'll tell you what they are later on. I was more of a Beatles man, more of a Monkeys man, but I never really got the Stones. Uh, the Independent, elderly could be made to pay up to £100,000 for care. Uh, that was the story yesterday about possibly changing the rules on who pays for social care, but uh, really, they didn't really change a lot. Um, the Daily Telegraph, every home is to pay the price of floods. Uh, the Times, family guilty of forcing men to work as slaves. That's the story we've been covering uh, on the news. The Daily Express, victory. We force government climb down and save benefits for millions of British pensioners. Uh, Daily Mirror, billionaire wife dead in house for a week. This is the story about um, the heiress um, who was found dead. And they've got some really shocking pictures uh, inside of her uh, decline, probably through drugs, and I, which I think is very sad. Uh, the Sun, cop took a bullet for me. This is the uh, survivor who, uh, who was supposed to be shot at, but the, 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 the cop took a bullet for him. Uh, and the front page of the Daily Mail, snouts in the Olympic trough fury as MPs are given free tickets by sponsors for biggest nights of the Games. Did we expect anything less? Time now to get the travel news with Sophie Tyler. <laughs> Good morning, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Breakfast. Uh, we will be talking about O2, about lying, and all kinds of things this morning. Do give me a call. 08459 455 555. Here's the news with Simon Oxley. Thank you, Simon. Good morning, dear listener. This is Ian Lee on uh, BBC Three Counties Radio, hosting your breakfast show for the next month or so. Now, if this is going to work for all of us... It's not just going to be me presenting this. I'm going to need your input as well. So it's very important that you take down this phone number I'm about to give you and you use it as regularly and as freely as you want. I really want to hear your voices on this show. Just to make it a bit more personal to you. You can take part as much as you want. Anything I talk about that you've got something to say on, a comment, a comment, a, a positive or a negative, or if you want to have an argument with me because I've said something you disagree with or it's upset you, then come on this show and do it. That's what this is going to be all about for the next month. You taking part in the show. The phone number, are you ready? It's 08459 455 555. 08459 455 555. Later on this morning, we're going to be talking uh, about lying. And I want, if you're a, a good liar, can you call me up and try and catch me out with a lie? I want a lie and a true statement from you. 08459. Four double five, five double five, or maybe your partner lies and you can tell every time they're doing it. I can't get anything past my wife, which I suppose is a good thing, but I just can't do it. Oh eight four five nine, four double five, five double five. And if you've been affected by the O two, the phone network meltdown yesterday, would love to hear from you. Is your phone back to normal? Mine is just, just. Will it last? I don't know. We're trying to get someone from O2 to come on, but we can't get hold of them. Well, who thought it? 08459 455 555. Across beds, hearts and bucks, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. 
You can give me a call about anything at any time. It'd be really nice to talk to you now. Here's something. Another sculpture worth thousands of pounds has been stolen from the Henry Moore Foundation in Hertfordshire. Simon was just talking about this in the main news. The bronze artwork called Sundial was taken from their grounds in Much Haddam on Tuesday night. Uh, seven years ago, another statue was stolen by thieves, which has never been recovered. Our reporter, Justin Dealey, is at the Foundation. Good morning, Justin. Morning, Ian. Sunshine here and uh, Much Haddam in Hertfordshire. Absolutely beautiful place to be this morning. What, what do we know about this latest theft? Well, police say the bronze sculpture taken this week measured 56 centimetres high and is worth between 250 and 500,000 pounds. We're talking here about an awful amount of money. It was taken sometime between 4.30pm on Tuesday and 11am yesterday morning. The statue had been situated in the gardens of Hoglands, uh, Moore's house, and police, of course, revealed back in 2009, a few years ago, that uh, a three million pound statue taken four years before was melted down by thieves and sold for just £1,500 oh in scrap. Oh my God, I heard Ooh. this figure earlier on. That's just incredible. Said a three million pound sculpture was sold for 1500 quid scrap. Absolutely, yeah. We're, we're going no, back to 2005 no. with this. Um, they took the reclining bronze figure, uh, of course, uh, created by Henry Moore from the foundation here. The CCTV footage at the time, going back to 2005, it, it showed a, uh, a gang which were here. They were hoisting the statue onto the back of a lorry. The lorry was never found and the bronze was never recovered either. But the police, they, they believe that it was melted down for scrap value, which totaled one thousand five hundred pounds which is absolutely outrageous incredible how listen this this sundial that's gone mm. i'm guessing it weighs a fair bit how the hell did they get it out well the thing is it, it's not just a, a problem here it's a problem right the way across bed starts and bugs right the way across the country because you've got professional gangs out there who are looking to steal things and they will then sell them on a scrap so you've probably got an awful amount of people they've got a lorry a bit like in 2005 a similar situation that they've got a gang of thieves mm. going in they know what they're looking for and they would take it and they would get out of the area as quickly as possible we can only hope on this occasion ian unlike in 2005 that they can find this piece of art well the thing is when times are hard then iron and copper and, and all these metals are the, are the first thing to go i know that church roofs are struggling because mm. everyone's nicking all the lead from it yeah absolutely and of course uh, if we go back to Toulouse and only recently that this was featured on crime watch uh, the wenlock jug there yeah uh, that was stolen from the stockwood park museum in Luce, and again worth something like 750 £50,000. That was paid for by the people of Luton. Uh, there are gangs out there who are doing this and of course uh, Henry Moore, the foundation here, doing such a, a great job supporting education and the promotion of arts. Uh, his work is seen right the way across the world and his work is worth millions of pounds. The thing is, Justin, right, I, I listen, stealing anything is of course absolutely atrocious and terrible but what's so heartbreaking about this is they're not stealing it because it's an amazing piece mm. of art they're stealing it to get a few quid for scrap. Yeah, uh, and that's the ridiculous wow. thing we, we, we were talking about this before the show today you know when it comes to artwork there are certain people on this planet who want a particular piece of art mm. and they will be in touch with professional gangs and they will have that on order if you like so they will pay a price to get a certain piece of art but 
you know, if you look at the, the, the facts again from this story and looking at the facts from 2005, it certainly appears that it's a gang who are going around to get this, to melt it down and to sell it on. And when you think the value is worth anything between, what, 250 and £500,000, they won't get anything like that because it will be melted down. Justin, I know you've got to travel virtually the other side of our uh, broadcasting range, so I shall let you disappear now, sir. Drive Thank carefully. You. Ta-ta. <laughs> Cheers. Justin Dealey, who's um, reporting on the, uh, the, the, the statue, the sculpture, sundial, that was taken from uh, the Henry Moore sculpture that was taken from Much Haddam on Tuesday night. Uh, we were talking earlier on to uh, Claire Rayner uh, about start-up businesses and start-up Britain and pop-up Britain, where these little uh, kind of b- b- boutiques are going to pop up for a couple of weeks and different businesses will be in there. We've got Eve from Dunstable. Hello, Eve. Hello there, Good morning. Good morning. What's your take on all of this? Well, the thing is, I'm quite exasperated with most town centres because at on. one time you could pay for your parking the time you were going to be there and you'd pay on exit. But today you have to decide how long you're going to be in a town centre. We're all a bit money conscious, mm. so we put in what we think we need. But if we stop and chat or we spend too long in a shop and we might want to browse the rest of the town, we're so fearful of a, of a clamp or a parking fine that we all rush back to the car. And um, so I think the parking in town centres have made shopping a bane rather than a pleasure. They've not helped, have they? Eve, the solution is simple. Don't chat when you're shopping, for goodness sakes. How I, dare you have I a chat? No, that's How dare no, you? It's outrageous, isn't it, to stop and chat or go for a coffee and then, you know, go ridiculous. to one of the coffee houses. You... It's, it's got ridiculous. And what I'd like to see mm. is um, instead of... If they're, obviously, they're not going to change all the machines now, um, but it would be nice that if you're ten minutes over, instead of getting the one flat fine, mm. it would be nice if it went up in increments of um, ten pounds. So if you're half an hour late, you're going to get a ten pound fine. If you're an hour late, you'll get a twenty pound fine. I know it can't work everywhere, but I'm sure this blanket fining where machines don't give any change... Yeah. And this blanket fining has stopped people just conversing. We, 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 we just seem to be looking at our, our mobile phones for time or our watches. Eve, I, I, listen, I'm going to move on because we've got more, plenty more people to get on. I totally agree. I think you're being generous with the £10 for half an hour. I once lost my ticket. And you know you have to pay like a 48-hour price. I, I lost my ticket. It cost me something like 60 quid. And then I found it later on that day. Boy, oh boy, was I furious. Thank you very much, Eve. 08459 455 555 if you want to join in. Now, there is a service for people in St Albans with HIV and AIDS, and it's under threat. Hertfordshire County Council have cut funding to the Crescent and are giving the money to Hearts Aid, another organisation near Watford instead. But people who use the Crescent say Watford is too far to travel and doesn't have the same privacy as its services are shared with mental health patients. Our reporter, Sophie Solaria, went down to the Crescent to meet the manager and some of the people who go there. Yeah, we try to create a sort of family sort of atmosphere. Everybody who's part of the Crescent is welcome at any time. They don't need an appointment. They don't need to, to make an excuse for, for coming. They can just wander in. And going upstairs, we have treatment room where we provide complementary therapies for people who may be experiencing side effects with medication or just generally with HIV. So Ian, you're the manager of the Crescent? Yeah, I'm entitled the head of operations, so yes. Uh, We've got about 300 members spread over two counties. We also support carers, in fact anybody who's been affected by HIV for perhaps the parents of someone who's lost a child because of HIV or a partner or 
any other family member. The whole centre is a three-storey house in the centre of St Albans, so quite a prestigious area. How much does it cost to run and maintain this facility? Um, We don't pay any rent or mortgage for the building. It's in trust to us. So the outlay is just basic maintenance, which is minimal. For the service itself, we were funded by Hertfordshire County Council and and the NHS together, just shy of £200,000 a year. But that used to fund um, over double the staff that we now have because we've now reduced to, to a degree where we're on just the bare minimum. We still have as many people needing us as, as ever, but we have no money with which to do it. So where has this money gone? Um, the money that has gone uh, from us appears to have been redistributed to HeartsAid, the other provider who've got the county-wide contract. I don't know where the rest of it's gone. HeartsAid have a, a, a 50 to 70% of our original funding and the rest, who knows? That's only the county council can answer that one. What will happen if the Crescent is forced to shut down? If it's forced to shut down, then there's going to be a whole host of, of issues that rise to the fore. Um, we've got members, some of our older members who've been living with HIV for 20, 25 years, will suddenly have nowhere to go. The alternative for some of them is a, a limited availability drop-in based in Watford in a service that's shared with mental health services, which some of them wouldn't even be able to get to. But the moment they walk through the door and declare that they're there for HIV services and not the mental health services, then they've immediately disclosed their status. So they're not going to want to go. When I was first diagnosed, I felt so isolated because I didn't know places like this existed until I actually went to the clinic and somebody pointed me in this direction. We meet people who are in the same boat as us, so we've got nothing to hide from each other. I mean, I feel more healthier now than I did before I started having me met. That's the same for me. I, I feel much healthier now. And there are people that come here who have no one else to tell and or can't for whatever reason. So this is the only place that they can be themselves and talk about it, you know, to get away from their normal life. And there's a couple of people here said things to me that actually gave me the courage to say, do you know what, I can do it. And I did. What would happen if the Crescent were to close? What would you do? I can't even think about that. Honestly, I can't think about it. We've tried basically everything. We've we've written letters to the council. The council has just give them the funding back. Uh, you know, there's nothing else you can say. Just give the funding back. Sophie Solaria there talking about the Crescent. And later on in this show, we'll be speaking to Colette Wyatt-Lowe, Cabinet Member for Health and Adult Care at Hearts County Council. It's 7.17 on the nose. Time to get the latest travel news now with Sophie Tyler. Beds, Hearts and Bugs News. BBC Three Counties Radio. The headlines this morning on BBC Three Counties Radio. Police in Hertfordshire investigating the theft of another Henry Moore sculpture, this time worth up to half a million pounds. The 1965 sundial was taken from the grounds of the Henry Moore foundation in much Haddon, moore's former home back in 2005 a bronze statue worth three million pounds was taken from the grounds of the museum four members of a bedfordshire traveler family who forced destitute men to work as modern day slaves will be sentenced today a decision will also be made about the charges where no verdict was reached with a retrial possible the defendants faced 58 charges at luton crown court but were yesterday found guilty of only 15 
In sport, the world number one Luke Donald begins the defence of his Scottish Open golf title today. The Buckinghamshire player is using the event as part of his preparations for next week's Open Championship. Hertfordshire's Tom Lewis, who starred in the Open last year as an amateur, needs a top-five finish in Scotland to qualify. There's a full sports bulletin in 15 minutes. There'll be a weather bulletin in a moment, but coming up, we'll be talking more about lying. Next, we speak to a psychologist from the University of Hertfordshire whose research is contesting some age-old theories about lying. Got any stories about it? 08459 455 555. I'm slightly distracted because we've had new Swish drinks machines installed here at BBC Three Counties, and I'm watching the uh, team, and I use that word very, very loosely, next door. These are grown men in in charge of expensive BBC equipment. They cannot work out how to use a tea machine. They can't work it out, and it's embarrassing. Because they're in charge of this show, and if, if, you know, if they can't do that, what hope is there for any of us whatsoever? Uh, we've had some texts, and you can text us anytime. 83133. Uh, start your text, 3 Counties Radio. Oh, this is from Mandy and Luton. Now, early on, we had um, Justin out by um, some of the signs the Love Luton signs that are still illuminated uh, several days after the event. And Mandy is, is, is texted in. We should get her working for us. She's texted in about something else. <clears throat> Thank you, Mandy. When Luton Council phone you, yeah, right, uh, about the Love Luton signs, could you ask them to remove the signs dotted around Wigmore advising of road resurfacing works? The work's finished in June. Thanks. Mandy of Luton, I officially appoint you as our road sign correspondent. You, you are in charge. If you see any road signs that are, are redundant, Mandy, get in touch um, and uh, <laughs> we, we will take your report. There's no salary involved, I'm afraid, whatsoever. That's all going towards me and Nick Grimshaw, so we can't help you there, I'm afraid. 08459 455 555. Time now to get the latest weather news with Dan Holly. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. This is interesting. A psychologist from the University of Hertfordshire is contesting some age-old theories about lying. It's always been thought that if someone moves their eyes to the right, they're lying, but if it's to the left, they're telling the truth. Our reporter, Serena Farrow, has been asking couples in Stevenage if they know when their partners aren't telling the truth. Yeah, I can. How? I don't know, tone of voice, probably. Or a smile. A smile, even! (laughs) A smile at the end. I use uh, lie serum as well, so... (laughs) I don't know, it's just a facial expression. We're just asking, can you tell when your partner's lying to you? Most of the time. What does he do? <laughs> no, I don't want to answer it. <laughs> he normally gives it away because it's quite stupid when it comes to lying. There's no logic, so when you try and add everything up together, it kind of just gives it away. So <laughs> just the questioning would just give it away. Not well thought out? No. So it would just be, I did this or I said that. So when the questioning kind of begins, it will all transpire that, no, it's just a lie. <laughs> thinking, wow, didn't realise she was that good. And vice versa. I'm guilty. No, she doesn't lie, actually. No, I don't. No, no I don't lie. If I've got something to say, I'll just say it. And if, even if I'm guilty, I'll just say, yeah, I've done it. I think if someone's lied once, then there's always this bit of doubt that they're going to lie again. Can you tell if she's lying to you? I think so, but I could be wrong. <laughs> I think I do lie to you. You don't lie? No. Oh, not even like the white lie, like you're not tired when you are? It's not lying. It all comes out in the end. I can tell my mum was lying when she said she could understand your accent and she couldn't. Can you tell if your partner's lying? I I don't think my wife does lie. Well, maybe she does, but I just can't tell. She can tell, see straight through me immediately. 08459 455 555. Can you tell if your partner's lying? What do they do that gives it away? My tip, if you want to become a liar, keep it simple. 
don't go in for those long, convoluted... Well, and then uh, the, the car came down, and the car was yellow, and just keep it simple. A nice, simple one sentence. The more you, you go into it, the, the obvious it is. 08459 455 555. Um, can you tell if your partner is lying? Now, psychologist Professor uh, Richard Wiseman from the University of Hertfordshire says if you really want to know if someone's lying, you need to listen to their voice. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Uh, we've always thought it's to do with eyes. You know, glancing to the right is a lie. Glancing to the left is probably telling the truth. You're saying this isn't the case. Absolutely. That's based on this uh, idea from neurolinguistic programming, mm. which is a, a real kind of rag bag. Some of it's true, some of it isn't. And so we thought we'd put it to the test. Uh, we got people to lie and tell us the truth. We looked at their eye movements. Then we looked at film from sort of very uh, high-pressured lies. And we didn't see any evidence for those, uh, those telltale eye movements. So we've concluded that it really is, at best, a very, very unreliable sign in terms of lying. What high-pressured lies were you looking at? Things like Nixon and stuff like that? Yeah, we were looking at, in particular, you know, those uh, instances where people, uh, the police have asked people to go on television and appeal for a missing relative, and then it turns out that they've uh, murdered that relative. Uh, so, yeah. uh, fairly... Uh, kind of a depressing set of video clips, it had to be said. Yes, we I'm sure. We uh, around about 60 of those from all over the world. Um, and these were uh, clips where we knew people were lying, obviously in a very pressured situation. It really mattered to them. Mm. Uh, we did that in the lab. It's a little bit more uh, light in the sense that we just have somebody go into a, a sort of office and role-play stealing a, a wallet or something like that and then come out and tell us they didn't do it. And in either of these situations, absolutely no evidence for this idea that eye movements can predict lying. What about, the, the thing I always thought was if you sort of grab your ear or, or rub your nose as you're talking, that that meant it was a porky. Yeah, so, so movement in general, I mean, lying is cognitively difficult. You have to think, you know, what, what's the person that already uh, know about me? What could they ask? What evidence might come up? And, and when you ever ask people to do something, which requires lots of thinking, yeah. they tend to become quite static. And, and liars in general don't move around. The one exception to that rule that is exactly the one that you said, which is uh, uh, hand movements, which are what's called distractors, uh, covering the mouth, uh, touching the hair, playing with clothing. Those do go up a little bit. So uh, you're absolutely right. Well, so what can someone's voice reveal? Well, the voice is, is the best signal because we're very good at controlling body language, you know, moving our hands in a particular way and, and so on. But the voice is much, much harder to control. So when you hear telltale uh, ums and ahs, uh, when you hear people dropping out details, suddenly saying less, uh, distancing themselves from the story, right. you hear a dropping of me, my, and I, and so on, that signals that, yes, indeed, they may not be uh, telling you the full story. I love it. I love it. This is fascinating. Richard, stay on the line. We have, we have Barry from Hamill. Good morning, Barry. Hi, good morning. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. Barry, you have a truth and a lie for us. Yes, I have. Sorry to put you on the spot, Richard, but we're going to test your theory. I know it's not laboratory conditions, but do you mind? <laughs> That's fine. We'll, we'll both have a go. Barry, you've, you've got a truth and a lie. Tell them uh, in no particular order, please. Yeah, well, this, this relates back to this Tuesday. Um, we had a new carpet fitted in our lounge, and within ten minutes of it being done, I spilled a cup of tea all over it. <laughs> so uh, I was in a little bit of trouble there. So that was this Tuesday, but really on Tuesday I didn't do that at all. I sat in the car all day with a load of screaming, shouting, singing people, singing at the top of their voice and heavy metal. <laughs> it, Richard, I'm, I do apologise. It appears a bonkers man has got on the line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, 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 
Okay, well, what do you think, Richard? The, 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 I mean, oh, it's, it's, it's so tricky. I mean, when you're dealing with just such a, a short, um, yeah, a little bit like that, and, and so if I had to make a guess, and, and it's almost like flipping a coin, I would say the second one is the lion, the, um, the first one is... I would say, yes, the first one. Don't worry, Richard, we will not judge your entire theory based on this one ridiculous experiment, I promise. I, I would say, Barry, yes, you spilt a cup of tea on your new carpet. No, that's completely wrong. I was sitting in a car all day doing a television advert for a car. Oh, my goodness. For, for heavy metal play. Was that Blooming Bird there as well? Who's that in the background? <laughs> oh, that's... that's um, Button is our, is our talking... Um, what do you call it, cocktail? Oh, well, there you go. There we go. Uh, Barry, listen, thank you. You managed to trick us. Uh, if anyone wants to have a go, 08459 It's only a little bit of fun. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for that. Thank you for being a good sport. Pleasure. Cheers. That's psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman from the University of Hertfordshire. Uh, can you tell if your partner's telling a porky pie? Do you know 08459 455 555? Or can you trick us like Barry? I wanted to ask him more, but time is against us. It's time for the latest travel news now with Sophie Tyler. Across beds, hearts and bucks, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. I've just been on Twitter uh, and had a little peek, as I often do. Uh, and the, the O2 Ferrari is still roaring. If you're with O2 and you've been affected by the, the, the network being shut down, it, it's kind of back up for most people. But if it's still down for you, or if, if it has been down and has affected you, could you give me a call? Yeah, I know what I'm saying there. Maybe use a pay, a pay phone? Do they still have pay phones? Do they? Brilliant. Do you remember them? 08459 455 555 uh, is the telephone number. Uh, We're keen to know how it's affected you. I bet loads of small businesses have been affected by this. If you're an independent little business using you use your O2 phone to um, to get trade, you're going to be struggling, aren't you? I mean, I I couldn't... My wife and I are currently sleeping in separate bedrooms. Don't ask why. Everything is fine. It's to do with kids. Uh, And the annoyance for me was I couldn't text her last night to wind her up that was the kind of big annoyance for me but it's still frustrating when you're paying for a service that you're not getting we're trying to get o2 on the the show i don't think we're going to get them to be honest i'm, I'm sure they've got bigger fish to speak to but 08459 455 555 is the telephone number if you want to tell us your your problems that you've had with the o2 network now were you a beatles or a stones fan <laughs> Today, the Stones are celebrating 50 years since their first gig at the Marquee Club in London. They've been described by many as the best live act in music history. We've got band uh, biographer Alan Clayson on the line now. Good morning, Alan. Hello, Ian. What is the secret to the Stones' success? That's a very interesting question. And can I have some of it, please? Well, uh, yes. I mean, I think that for a start, they've managed to keep going for so long. And there's always been the suspicion that they're going to sort of pull some stroke. I mean... you know, a couple of times in recent years with singles like Saint of Me and before that Love is Strong, mm. they've, they've sort of made the charts, I mean, at least the top 20. And, uh, you know, I don't think that you can actually write, ever been able to write them off as, a, as some sort of commercial proposition. Were those the singles that were from old sessions that they released? No, they weren't from old sessions. Right. They were actually new singles. Okay. And, you know, the, the Stones have somehow managed to stay just beyond the nostalgia circuit, you know, and they've managed to maintain interest in their latest 
product. I mean, for example, A Bigger Bang was a sort of number one mm. album. And, uh, you know, you, you can't, for instance, ever visualise the Stones being on, you know, the, the nostalgia circuit, like something like Ringo Starr's All-Star oh, Band. Oh, don't knock Ringo. I, I love a bit of Ringo. Well, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> knocking him. I'm just saying, no, you, I know, know what you mean. That, 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 you know, when Ringo goes out, then, you know, what do you want to yeah. hear? Do you want to hear stuff from his latest album? Or do you want to hear, you know, it don't come easy or, you know, act naturally and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> no, I, I, mean, I want to hear Photograph when I go and see Ringo live. Well, perhaps. <laughs> but, I mean, having said that, I mean, I think, you know, the Stones would risk getting lynched if they didn't do Jumping Jack Flash, for example. That's the thing, isn't it? If they went out and just did a whole new album in one of these stadiums, they would, they would suffer, wouldn't they? I think they probably would because, you know, there's certain things that are expected of them. And, of course, you know, all their hits, you know, particularly the 60s hits, are advantaged by sort of, you know, like almost half a century of, of airplay oh, and availability. It is, uh, 50 years, is, I, I find it absolutely incredible. Do, do you, uh, is there going to be a final tour? I think there is. I mean, there was a vague announcement about that yesterday from Mick Jagger. I mean, you know, they're always saying that things are going to be the final yeah, tour, yeah. you know, and there are so many, you know, I mean, Frank Sinatra made n number of farewell performances but i mean you have to consider that a lot of the the, the stone sort of blues icons you know the, the people that they admired when they were young i mean they kept going right to the end yeah. you know like muddy waters or howling wolf you know and i think you know n- no pop group has ever you know gone on this long simply because you know there have there hasn't been a pop group around to see if it was possible and also with the exception of brian jones that they're all alive, that which is uh, uh, amazing in itself for various reasons. Well, I, I think it is. You know, I mean, I, I think that, that, um, that, for example, Keith Richards has got the constitution <laughs> of a Superman. You know, if you want to read a dirty story, read the, the Keith Richards autobiography. How that man is still walking is is ridiculous. Uh, if they did do a final tour, well, well, surely they would need to get Bill Wyman back, wouldn't I they? I suspect they would, and I, I, I don't see how Bill could resist it if yeah. they made approaches to him. You know, if it really was a final tour. Uh, and is the, 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 the rivalry between Richards and Jagger, is that real or is that kind of a little bit of showbiz? Well, I think that, I, I'm not sure, I, I, I mean, I think that their friendship became very a very antagonistic friendship. Yeah. Um, and obviously all these, <laughs> well, delicate allegations recently yes. that, that Keith Richards has made. I mean, I, I, got, I have a feeling that he probably said that, you know, in a, in a kind of off-the-cuff sort of way. Without going into detail, because this is BBC and it's breakfast, he, didn't he make uh, an allegation about the size of something very close to Mick Jagger's heart? It, well, yes, that's correct, yes, yeah. Yes, and okay. I should imagine that, you know, Mick was, was very offended <laughs> by that. But, you know... Uh, uh, you know, I think that the fact is that they've been able to weather that and other storms throughout yeah. the year. I mean, the, gr- the group, to all intents and purposes, packed it in in the 80s. Yeah. But, you know, somehow they, they made up. I don't know, you know, and I don't think it was just to do with commercial considerations. What's, uh, what's your, your favourite Stone song? I know I'm putting you on the spot here, Alan, but if you had to pick one... I think Jumping Jack Flash. Yeah. I mean, I think Pete Townsend said once upon a time, if ever, ever you're feeling depressed or if you need some sort of transcendental lift, then just think of the first time you ever heard Jumping Jack Flash. You know, and I think it's certainly a very life-affirming song. Alan, you're going to hate me. My, my favourite band 
It's the monkeys. Oh, really? D- yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't mind them. Actually, I mean, I'll tell you something about the monkeys. Yeah. I mean, regardless of content, I mean, their records for the time were the best mastered, best produced um, products of that particular Well, they had all the, 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 the movie money, you know, the TV money well, to, yeah, was thrust and, into it. And they had the sort of pick of all these sort of yeah. Los Angeles session crew. Yeah. And, you know, and... And you know the, the, there was no reason they you know they they were successful almost by mathematical precision. Exactly, uh, Alan. Listen, very exciting times for the Stones. Is, is there anything happening to celebrate this momentous occasion? Well, I think there are probably a lot of sort of you know die-hard fans <laughs> who are sort of thinking about it. But you know the trouble is, it, it's a Thursday. It's a normal working day for everybody. I think it might have been different if it had fallen at the weekend. Um, you know, and there there has been a sort of vague momentous announcement by Mick Jagger that the, about this fo- so-called final tour, but whether it'll actually come into fruition remains to be seen. Alan, thank you very much. Alan, go home and watch your Sucker Blues bootleg video and enjoy yourself. There's, there's band biographer Alan Clayson talking uh, about its 50 years since the Rolling Stones' first gig at the Marquee Club. Man alive. <clears throat> Sorry, you will notice I will try and cram the monkeys into every conversation I can. For that, I can only apologise. Uh, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Breakfast. Now, the public are being asked to vote on which sculptures should be put along the Luton to Dunstable busway. Artist Pete Morehouse has come up with 22 potential designs. He's got to narrow them down to four. Pete's on the line now. Good morning, Pete. Good morning, Ian. Pete, we heard, when we heard from you before, you were looking to create sculptures based on their history of Luton and Dunstable. What have you come up with? Well, very interestingly, um, you know, I consulted widely with the public and they came up with a whole host of different sort of, it's all contemporary um, historical references. And interestingly enough, the music theme was very strong as well, Mm. obviously with the history of the California ballroom, the big bands playing there, you know, exactly as like the Rolling Stones, um, Jimi Hendrix and things like that. So that was one of the the actual sculpture models that came out of this sort of consultation in the workshops with the schools was sort of a series of works sort of based upon music with guitars and so forth. Other references have been sort of to do with the orange rolling that used to happen on the downs. Obviously, a lot of the works relate to Pete, them. Pete, the I'm going to interrupt you there. Did you say the orange rolling? Yeah. What, what on earth is that? You haven't heard of the orange rolling that used to happen on the downs? <laughs> I've missed out on the orange rolling. Tell me more. Oh, I'm my in. goodness. For hundreds of years, there used to be orange rolling down the downs on Good Friday. It was, it was you know, it was, all the children of Dunstable would flood up to the downs to sort of catch oranges, Wonderful. which were literally thrown off the top of the downs. I mean, it was, it was incredible. The old days You can see live footage. There's like little video clips, incredibly, that are on, um, on the internet. But... You know, it's, 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 it's nice to remember that, unfortunately, it was stopped in the 60s due to sort of, you know, overzealous... Health you know, and safety health gone mad, safety, it? you know, safety it's, gone it's mad. a shame, it's a shame, you know, it's, it's probably more dangerous to drive there, you know, to the Downs these days than it would be to catch an orange, you know, but there you go. The designs <laughs> are... You've made the designs so far out of cardboard, is that right? And, and people can see yeah, them? Yeah, they're small cardboard models, yes. They're all online, they're on a website, buswayart.wordpress.com. So give that again, so bus, the, buswayart.wordpress.com. Yeah. Yep. And people and, can go um, have a look. We, we, we did have them at the libraries. They were they were at um, Dunstable Library and Houghton Regis Library. So a lot of the general public came to see them in those locations. So we've got we've already got a very clear indication of which are people's favourites. But we're leaving it open for a couple more weeks. So if people would like to go and visit the website, take a look at the the different maquettes. 
and you know, you know, comment. There's a comment facility on the website, so just let us know what you like. I mean, I should say that these designs is very much a community, you know, involvement project. Yeah. It's not like I've just come along and dumping a, a sculpture there. It's very much, you know, we consulted widely what people wanted as references, and then I worked with several schools and the art college to de- develop the designs. And now it's the public actually choosing. So Fantastic. hopefully, the finished works will have you know a huge amount of you know involvement and ownership for the community rather than just having some artist who comes from you know anywhere and just dumps it down sort of thing so it should have a lot of relevance to the to dunstable and pete, listen thank you very much we're going to end it there because I'm, I'm i'm terrible on my timings this morning but that's pete morehouse uh, who's come up with uh, 22 potential designs for the luton to dunstable busway go and check out the website go and vote on them i think this is a fantastic idea and it really is a chance for you to shape what your community looks like how cool is that uh, go and have a look at the website. Pete, I'm sure we'll speak to you a- a- again when we get a bit closer to those, um, those the sculptures being unveiled uh, properly, uh, as it were. And I'm totally on YouTube this afternoon. Orange rolling? Fantastic. Uh, here's the latest travel news now with Sophie Tyler. Beds, hearts and bugs news. BBC Three Counties Radio. The headlines this morning on BBC Three Counties Radio. Police in Hertfordshire are investigating the theft of another Henry Moore sculpture, this time worth up to half a million pounds. The 1965 sundial was taken from the grounds of the Henry Moore Foundation in Much Haddam, Moore's former home. Back in 2005, a bronze statue worth three million pounds was taken from the grounds of the museum. Four members of a Bedfordshire traveller family who forced destitute men to work as modern-day slaves will be sentenced today. A decision will also be made about the charges where no verdict was reached, with a retrial possible. In sport, the world number one, Luke Donald, begins the defence of his Scottish Open golf title today. The Buckinghamshire player is using the event as part of his preparations for next week's Open Championship. Hertfordshire's Tom Lewis, who starred in the Open last year as an amateur, needs a top-five finish in Scotland to qualify. The weather for beds, hearts and bucks. Staying dry with sunny spells, but turning cloudier during the afternoon. Outbreaks of rain will arrive this evening. Top temperature around 19 degrees Celsius. And coming up on the show, it's National Transplant Week. And here on BBC Three Counties, we're getting a greater insight into the organ transplant process. We'll be speaking to a woman from Hitchin who's waiting on the kidney transplant list. Jonathan Vernon-Smith. Weekday mornings from nine on BBC Three Counties Radio. It's a good listen. I'll tell you that, it's a good listen. We've had um, a couple of texts. You can text 83133. Start your text 3CR. I prefer your phone calls, and you can call in any time about anything you hear. 08459 455 555. But we've had a couple of texts. Dave says, how, can any, how anybody can say Henry Moore's work is art is beyond me. It is ugly scrap. And uh, an anonymous text with uh, atrocious spelling, I'll let you know. I always know when my partner's lying... Her mouth moves. You see what they've done there? They've done a funny. Uh, This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Breakfast. It's National Transplant Week, and here on the BBC Three Counties, we're getting a greater insight into the organ transplant process. Yesterday, we heard how more than 7,000 people in the UK are waiting for a transplant. Jenny Critchlow from Hitchin is one of them, uh, and she's on the kidney transplant list. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning. How long have you been waiting for? Um, I had a transplant in 86, um, failed in 90, so since 1990 I've been waiting. 21 years? Yes. (laughs) That's incredible. I thought you were going to say like 18 months or something. No. (laughs) How would an organ transplant uh, change your life, Jenny? Um, it would give me more freedom and being able to go and do the things that I like to do most. Mm. Um... Being that I have to dialyse, it sort of restricts you quite a lot. Well, it, it, how does it restrict you? What, what does it prevent you from doing? Um, 
well, it prevents me from... I have to really organise my life in everything that I do, um, because, like, first thing in the morning, I have to sort the machine out, then I have to dialyse, and as long as everything goes okay, then I can go off and do what I need to do. Mm. But if I get problems, then it, it really restricts me going and doing what I need to do. How long does it take to dialyse? Um, well, I do two hours on the machine, but oh. I do that six days a week. Oh, my goodness. And what kind of problem? You said if, if there are problems, it can ruin the day. What kind of problems could you well, encounter? Well, you can have machine failures, and because um, I've got lines which I dialyse through, if there's problems with the lines, again, that can cause a serious problem, and then I may end up having to go back to the hospital to get that sorted out. So there's always little hiccups. If everything's going okay, that's fine. But like I said, it still restricts you about where you go and what you do. You sound in surprisingly good spirits about this, and I guess it's because you've been dealing with it for a long time, but I I guess it it must get you down, mustn't it? Um, Sometimes it does. Yeah. Um, But being that I've I've been in renal failure since I was 21, so it's been a lifelong process for me, and it's just part of it. It's like doing a job. You get up and you do it, so that's how I look at it as. And in your experience, has there been a lot of negativity around organ donation? Um... For me, yes, because it's something that people wish not to talk about, because you're talking about taking something from a person who has died, and Mm. people just don't want to talk about it. I find that incredible. Yeah, but it's difficult. I mean, if anybody has a loved one that they love so much, and then when you have to turn around and say, well the organs are there, mm. and we use them, it's a bit like, mm-hmm. well, I just want you to leave them alone now, yeah. and, you know, and let them carry on. But as we know, um, having an organ donation helps others, yeah. and there's so many of us waiting. It's just hard to approach people to us. Do you know, this is interesting, because I've got two little boys, and I've not had this conversation with my wife, and I, I, I uh, assume that we would both agree that if something were to happen, that, that organs would be up for grabs. But we've, I've not had this conversation with her, and I guess I probably should, to make sure we're both in Aware, agreement as what yes, should happen. Yes, because if you don't talk about it, that if at the point when yeah. you're... If something seriously happens, how would you know whether your mm. partner wanted to do that? Mm. I know that, like, I have said to her that if, if I, when I pass away, they can come and take anything they want from me. They can grab anything they might find useful. Uh, what happens, Jenny, if you don't find a suitable donor? Is there a critical point when you, by when you need to have one? I presume there is. Um, I just know that a lot of people, um, what's the word, you sort of sit and wait. It's, mm. like, sitting in, it's like a lottery. Yeah. So... And if it doesn't, you've just got to learn to be able to cope with dialysis. I mean, sometimes the process will get to and then people do die. I mean, a lot do die on dialysis, but that's because the organs just aren't there. Jenny, I could talk to you all morning. This is absolutely fascinating. This is a complete eye-opener. Jenny, thank you so much for your time, and uh, fingers crossed. I hope things turn out well for you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's Jenny Critchlow from Hitchin, uh, who's on the kidney transplant list. She's been waiting for 21 years. I find that incredible. Am I being naive? Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five is the telephone number. Now, a charity in Milton Keynes is taking over responsibility for canals and rivers from Watford-based British Waterways. The trust will look after two thousand miles of waterways, including the Grand Union Canal. We've got Simon Salem from the Canal and River Trust. Good morning, Simon. Oh, hang on, let me just go to this one. I apologise. Good morning, Simon. 
Good morning. You're there. Thank you very much. Explain to us what you'll be doing and why you're different to the British Waterways. Well, if you like, we've got all the advantage that British Waterways used to have. We've got the income that they used to have. We've got uh, now a locked-in 15-year contract with government for the public bit of our funding. But as a charity, we're also able to get out there and uh, and appeal for the support of the public in lots of different ways. So, for instance, we're looking in the run-up to this. We've been planning this for three years. We're looking for more people to volunteer, volunteering for us on our predecessor British Waterways up 60% in the last few years. That's a great indicator. And today we're launching 50 appeals all across the country lots of different ways in which you can help make your local waterway a better place and a more sustainable place well you say volunteer what are these volunteers doing are they jumping in the water and pulling out shopping trolleys and things like that uh, well, uh, they don't just jump in, no. it, but we do like to keep them safe. Okay, but, okay uh, yes, I'm, I'm uh, sure it's a little bit more organised well, than just jumping in. That, that's, one of, one, that's one of the things. Uh, people do help us clear up and clean up. Uh, but, for instance, uh, we've been able to put on more and more uh, extra lock keepers at busy times in the summer because one of the things that's been really popular is people uh, being able to volunteer to be lock keepers. People really enjoy mm. that. Uh, and uh, the charity had great support from the actor Brian Blessed, who's promoted uh, a campaign for us to get more volunteer lock keepers. He loves the waterways. He wants to get that across to people and he'll get it across in a very loud booming voice won't he definitely extremely extremely (laughs) Uh, what, what are the main issues surrounding canals and rivers at the moment uh i i think it's about uh not taking for granted what we've got yeah it's about saying these are special places they've been around doing their job for 250 years nearly uh but don't let's take it for granted let's make sure we keep them special for the next 200 years let's think in canal time let's think ahead uh and that means people getting involved and uh, and, and helping out and i have to say i've been really heartened by early response from the public what about water levels i'm guessing there was a problem are they still low or is the the freak weather kind of sorted that out now well, yeah, uh, that has. Uh, what's happened this year has just been a bit of a roller coaster ride yeah. in terms of rain, hasn't it? You know, too little, too much, too much. Uh, uh, right now, it's sorted out the problem. Uh, we do have to look after our water stocks, stocks carefully, though, and we do have to think ahead and say what will happen despite all the rain now if we have a very dry winter coming up. But that's one of the things that one of the jobs of the trust is to manage water sustainably and in consultation with all the people who need it locally. Will the people who use the canals and the, and the rivers regularly? Will they notice any? different now that you've taken over well i I don't think that you know there'll be a a big bang that says suddenly i walk onto my canal and river and it looks totally different what i think they will notice over time uh, is that uh, uh, more and more of the things uh, the nice to have projects get done uh, more and more things get slowly better looked after uh, and uh, they realize that more and more of their neighbors and their community are involved with the local water somebody said to me about the north it must be said uh, that their local canal is what makes skipton skipton and Mm. i think a lot of people think like that it's what makes my village or town a special place simon thank you very much it's simon salem from the canal and river trust and you, you kind of do take them for granted the canals and the rivers oh they're there uh but you know there's nothing better on a sunday afternoon a, a slow stroll along the canal fantastic uh, and they're the people that are going to be making sure that they're, they're, they're functioning do support them it's a superb thing simon salem thank you very much time now to get the latest travel news with sophie tyler <laughs> Good morning, dear listener. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. If you'd like to give me a call, you're more than welcome to. 08459 455 555. Hopefully speak to you after the latest news and sport with Simon Oxley. Good morning, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Breakfast. I'm here until nine o'clock. And then it's JVS. He'll pop in about 15 minutes or so to tell us what he's uh, got coming up on his show. It's, it's sure to be a humdinger. I, was, I do enjoy his show. I was having a good listen on the way home yesterday. 
Ah, <laughs> oh dear. I'm here till nine o'clock. Uh, if you want to give us a call, you're more than welcome. 08459 455 555. You can text 83133. Start your text 3CR or email 3CR at bbc.co.uk. and Bucks. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, another sculpture worth thousands of pounds has been stolen from the Henry Moore Foundation in Hertfordshire. The bronze artwork called Sundial was taken from their grounds in Much Haddam on Tuesday night. Seven years ago, another statue was stolen from the foundation, which has never been recovered. Dick Ellis is a private art investigator and used to work for New Scotland Yard's famed art and antique squad. He's currently in Italy lecturing on art theft. Dick, you're, you're living the dream life, aren't you? Well, it, it, has its, um, it has its good moments, that's for sure. <laughs> and I love the title. I, I wish I could say I'm a private art investigator. That sounds very cool. I bet that goes down well at parties. Yes, it's not a bad line. Uh, now, Dick, what, what is your take on this? The police are suggesting that this uh, sundial has been taken for scrap metal. Is that the case, do you think? Well, I mean, it's always possible. There's been a huge increase that people will be aware in the theft of metals, you know, cabling off the railways, uh, church roofs and that sort of thing. Um, that, that is definitely stolen for scrap. I, I'm always hesitant, though, when you get things like Henry Moore's being stolen because they're worth on the art market, uh, even, you know, on the black market, is substantially more than scrap mm. value. And without knowing the ins and outs of this particular theft, because I'm in sunny Italy... <laughs> All right, calm down. <laughs> I thought I'd just rub that in. Thank you. Uh, it's difficult to know. I mean, on the previous occasion... Uh, I don't think it was stolen for scrap. Um, firstly, the scrap metal value was not as high as it is today. Mm. Secondly, they stole a flatbed truck with a hoist, which was located a mile and a half from the point of theft, which indicated a lot of careful planning. The second-hand value of that truck was considerably more than they would have got for the scrap value of the, um, the Henry Moore statue. So to drive off with a two-and-a-half-ton Henry Moore on the back... Um, was inviting trouble, unless, of course, the sculpture was actually what you went there to steal. Uh, And then the information that we had coming back from various sources was that that sculpture had actually been cut into five sections to make it easier to hide whilst they found a buyer. So whether they've ever found a buyer, I don't know. Well, where does does this stuff go? Because is it private collectors getting gangs to do it? It sounds like something from the Pink Panther. Who who would have this sculpture? Because you can't display it, you can't sell it, it becomes worthless. Well, I mean, you you move it. I mean, the likelihood is, with a Henry Moore, it would be moved overseas and it would be sold elsewhere where it wouldn't be quite so apparent, quite so obvious that this is a very valuable Henry Moore. Dick, are you telling me that, like, and it does sound like a movie, in the movies, there are these multi-millionaires who've got a secret room in their apartments and you walk in and it's covered with rare works of art from all around the world? Uh, no. Good. Those, those characters are purely mythical, you know, the James Bond characters, they, are, they, are, they don't exist in reality. The nearest we've come to that turned out to be a French waiter working in Switzerland who over a period of years robbed a, a whole mass of about 172 different museums, fortunately on continental Europe, never made it across the channel. 
Um, and when he was caught, all of the objects were at his home. Unfortunately, it took 19 days for the French police and the Swiss police jointly to get there, during which time his mother had uh, shredded the painting oh. that pink disposal unit and over a billion dollars worth of art was lost. She shredded a billion dollars. Oh, my goodness. This is breaking up. Now, very, very quickly, we, we had the Wenlock jug that was taken from the, a museum in Luton. That, that must have been stolen to order because that, that would be worthless as scrap almost, wouldn't it? Well, it, I mean, yes, I mean, the scrap value of it is negligible. But unfortunately, the, the trend, and there, there, there has been a trend this year, it, you know, it started with rhino horns because... The price of rhino horn in the Far East went through the roof, so people thought, great, we won't go poaching, we'll just steal them from the museums. Um, and then with the rise in the Chinese art market, it's been seen that Chinese artifacts fetch a lot of money. So the, the thought process of these criminals is, is, is relatively basic. Uh, you know, it, it goes along the lines of, well, well, let's steal some Chinese artifacts. Where do we find them? Well, museums generally have good quality stuff. So you find the right museum, and, and they've been hitting those museums uh, with a view to offloading these things for very little money mm. to middlemen in the anticipation that these receivers will then be able to sell these on into a bigger network, and, and they may well be able to do that. Dick, very quickly, actual- sorry to interrupt, we're running out of time. Can I just ask quickly, who are you lecturing to today about art theft? Who's coming? Um, I, well, I lectured to some students who are um, studying a program. They're mostly um, either in the art world or lawyers. Uh, and it's a, it's a three-month uh, residential program here in Italy um, aimed at researching art crime with a view to being able to assess the real scale of the problem, do something about it. It's absolutely fascinating. I could talk, we've had some cracking guests this morning. That was Dick Ellis, who's a private art investigator who used to work for New Scotland Yard, and he's in Italy lecturing on art theft at a three-month residential course. What? <laughs> I'm, t- I'm in Luton, and it's, it's... I don't know what the weather's like. It's, it's probably chucking it down at the moment. Unbelievable. Fantastic, Dick. Thank you very, very much indeed. Now... A service for people in St Albans with HIV and AIDS is under threat. Hertfordshire County Council have cut funding to the Crescents and are giving the money to Hearts Aid, another organisation near Watford, instead. But people who use the Crescent say Watford is too far to travel and doesn't have the same privacy as its services are shared with mental health patients. Here are some of their concerns. We have a recognition agreement with the Crescent. It's a formal recognition agreement for the purposes of collective bargaining. And in law, the County Council should have consulted both us as well as the employees and the organisation of the Crescent. They didn't either. The funding was withdrawn, very short period of notification, and the service, or the funding for the service, was allocated to Hartside. I believe, well, I know, that the um, County Council's own processes require that any contract over £90,000 should be put out to a competitive tendering process. That never happened. The Crescent were never given the opportunity to state their case and how they could provide services and at what cost they could provide those services. So the whole process was flawed, very underhand, and we, we don't know why. If you look at the amount of money that Hertfordshire County Council are getting from central government for HIV AIDS support, specifically identified for that, we were getting from them less than a fifth of that total. So there is more than enough money available to fund both operations as they had done for the last 25 years why they need now to only fund one, which is, by their own admission, seems not working properly, is a mystery. You heard there Paul Meaton from Unison in Hertfordshire and manager of the Crescent, Ian Murtagh. Now we've got Colette Wyatt-Lowe, who's the Conservative councillor responsible for health and adult care at Hertfordshire County Council. Colette, why have you withdrawn the money from the Crescent? 
Um, it's not a question of withdrawing money from the Crescent. We decided to move to a single county-wide provider for HIV services because we felt that that was in the best interest of, of, of those service users. It would also enable us to provide that service in a more uniform way targeted across the county. The Crescent contract was not taken away. It actually came to an end. It was yeah, in March, um, and the decision was taken to... Um, put that out for tender. Some of the information that we, I've just heard is incorrect and um, I, I, I actually, um, I think that the um, it's doing a disservice to the wider county users uh, for HIV who might feel that HeartAid is not up to providing the service. First of all, I, I would like to say that Hertfordshire County Council has a very strong track record of working with and supporting organisations such as the Crescent. But especially in today's climate, we can't afford to fund everyone. Uh, I recognise that many people receiving support from the Crescent would prefer to continue to do so, but we can't afford to fund okay, them. Well, Unison seems to believe that there are vested interests in the committee who decide where the money goes. Paul Meaton says that some of the decision makers are on the board of Hertz Aid. Is that, is that true? No, that's not true. One of the, uh, the chair of the board of Hearts Aid is a county councillor, but she has not been involved in any of the decision-making. She doesn't sit on the panel. She isn't a cabinet member, and I would refute that most strongly. And I have to say that many, many allegations have been made by the Crescent in respect of this issue, and I, and, and I understand that they want to protect their service. We have investigated every allegation made by them, and only two have ever needed any action. One okay. was about advice on suitable premises which we took and put in action and the other one was about a frankly rather curious leaflet that was removed as soon as we were aware of it. Those, you know, what, honestly, was the, what was the curious leaflet? Oh, it was some rather odd thing about um, uh, how to deal with HIV which seemed to emanate from a South African organisation and this was found in the, uh, the leaflet rack at, uh, at the wear office of HeartAid and was, was uh, removed immediately. Well, what about the service users who can't get to East Hearts or don't want to share the service with mental health users due to anonymity? It's, it's not appropriate, is it? I visited the, um, the premises in Watford that they're referring to, and, and I can assure you that, um, from, from my point of view, uh, there, di there did seem to be a, a, a very um, strong degree of an anonymity available there. But what I would say is that we've had... But you have, to go, in, you have to go in and say, oh, I'm here for this. You have to state your reason in the reception area. That can't be... You can write it down, or, and, uh, but I can assure really? you this. But listen, um, we've heard an awful lot about um, the, the Crescent side of things. And we've, I know there are some very high-profile people... Well, this people. is why we've got you on, is to get very, the other listen, side. I'm, I'm listening, I'm just saying that's why. <laughs> There are some very high-profile people who support the Crescent and the Crescent users and stuff who've never, ever taken the opportunity to, to visit the HeartSafe premises and find out what exactly is on okay. offer there. Well, the, the now, unison, we the, we the, are very satisfied okay. with the service I'm glad that HeartSafe um, provide. We monitor them rigorously, Good. and not only us, but the... National, you know, the okay. NHS. Let, let me put this to you. Unison and the Crescent and its service users have told BBC Three Counties they've written to the council numerous times asking why you're cutting their funding but you haven't given any response. That is not true. We have responded to every request they've made. They have made um, 
um, numerous requests uh, to meet with people which have all been met as far as I'm aware. Um, I have met myself with Paul Murta, uh, sorry, Ian Murta. We had a very amicable meeting at the offices of uh, of the Crescent and discussed the issues and I, and I appreciate that they, you know, Crescent users and, Paul, and Ian have, uh, you know, they care about the service that they got but we can't afford to fund two services providing the same kind of thing. Okay, Colette, we've got to end it there. It's Colette Wyatt-Lowe who is um, the Conservative Councillor responsible for health and adult care at Hertfordshire County Council. Um, thank you very much for that. Uh, okay, let's get the latest travel news, I think, now with Sophie Tyler. Beds, hearts and bugs news. BBC Three Counties Radio. The headlines this morning on BBC Three Counties Radio. Police in Hertfordshire are investigating the theft of another Henry Moore sculpture, this time worth up to half a million pounds. The 1965 sundial was taken from the grounds of the Henry Moore Foundation in Much Haddon, Moore's former home. Senior MPs are asking why the security contractor G4S has failed to recruit enough staff to man checkpoints at the Olympics. The shortfall will be filled up uh, by up to 3,500 soldiers, some of whom have just returned home from Afghanistan. In sport, the world number one, Luke Donald, begins the defence of his Scottish Open golf title today. The Buckinghamshire player is using the event as part of his preparations for next week's Open Championship. Hertfordshire's Tom Lewis, who starred in the Open last year as an amateur, needs a top-five finish in Scotland to qualify. There's a full sports bulletin in 15 minutes and we'll also have a full weather bulletin soon and later on we speak to a woman from Hemel who's desperately trying to raise funds to save her husband's life 08459 455 555 Good morning, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio I'm joined by uh, Jonathan Vernon-Smith Good morning, Jonathan Yes, hello Oh, uh, Good morning, Jonathan It's uh, it's freezing in here <laughs> What's going on? I, I don't know how to change it but also I do like it cold Do you? So I'm quite happy with it, Jay. I hate it cold Really? Thank goodness we don't come from the same studio Is there a, is there a way to change? The, the settings no it? have you seen the new drinks machines yes you're a fan uh i've had a an espresso mocha choca this morning it was very luxurious was it 20 pence well spent <laughs> <laughs> was it yes it was delicious you didn't pay for it no <laughs> i did actually i paid for it and i even bought my team a coffee wow i know at 20 pence a pop that's a whole 80 pence you spent this morning that is the way we roll on the jvs show <laughs> what's on your show today coming up this morning on the big phone in do you need a mobile phone as you've been discussing today o2's network has failed affecting many of its customers which total around 23 million but the company says it doesn't know how many people are unable to send or receive calls or texts complaints about the lack of service have been rife on social media websites yesterday and you can do the uh, the accent if you want bbc television presenter hugh edwards tweeted six hours of non-service and counting simply not good enough or two but there's one thing that this uh sorry i, I thought he was welsh <laughs> might go for it there's one thing that this failure shows if you rely on your mobile phone life can be hard when it's not working but it also shows do we really need these mobile phones i don't know about you but if I haven't got my mobile phone on me, yes. I go into, a, like, a blind panic. Well, you, you, since you came in, you've been sat there fiddling away with your phone. I don't I've know what been tweeting doing. somebody who's offering to get me a special Soviet Union mobile phone. <laughs> I don't know why this person is... Give them your bank details, and I'm sure it'll all be I'm, fine. I'm sure, absolutely. But I can't live without my mobile phone. It's essential. I email, mm. I tweet, I Facebook. I, I would call. like to... I would love to have the, the, the courage to be able to get jump out of the grid. Is that the phrase? But would you really? Yeah, I would. I hate it. I hate being contactable all the time. But in this job, you, you need it. You need it. You know, I've just got back from a luxury villa in Frigoliana. 
And I've heard that rumour, yes. When I arrived there this year, I was delighted when I found they'd installed Wi-Fi. Because it meant I could have my mobile phone on next to the swimming pool, so I had my mobile here, yes. Pinot Grigio there. We had all of your tweets about you and Jeremy Vine. And life, life was good, absolutely. And so now? Now it's not so good. Now. <laughs> now it's terrible and sad, <laughs> miserable. Now we're back in rainy England. But a mobile phone is essential, isn't it? From nine this morning, I'd love to hear from you. Do you need a mobile phone? Is there anyone listening? If so, call me at nine. Is there anyone listening that doesn't have a mobile phone? In 2012, surely there can't be anyone who doesn't have a mobile phone 08459 455 555 do you need a mobile phone it's the big phone in at night why are you laughing at me What's i just think because i'm used to hearing you on the radio and seeing you in full flow in the, the full performance i've got funny face and i your face is funny but you're you, the, <laughs> no, not funny but you're the hands the hands are integral yeah you've got to use the hands when yes. you talk okay see you later bye 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 that's, that's my polite way of booting him out of the studio. See you later. Ta-ta. Uh, there's Jonathan who's on at uh, nine o'clock and really is uh, thoroughly worth a listen. If you're a new listener, and I know a few people have kind of followed me from whatever nonsense I used to do, do check Justin out because I, I genuinely think he's brilliant. Right. Let's get the latest weather now, Dan Holly. Thank you very much, Dan. Now, a new mother from Hertfordshire is trying to raise thousands of pounds to pay for medical treatment that could save her husband's life. Last year, Melina Sk- uh, Skorupska, uh, her husband, Yarek, was diagnosed with a brain tumour. He's been getting treatment in Britain, but there's no guarantee it will work. Our reporter Justin Dealey is with Milena now, and apologies if I pronounced any names wrong there. Thank you, Ian. As you say, I'm with uh, Milena right now. Milena, thank you so much for your time. You've been married to Jarek for two years. Where did you meet him? Uh, we met on the internet in 2004 when I came to the UK. He was here for about 10 years, and then I just uh, came around. Uh, I didn't know anybody, so I was spending some time on the uh, internet, and that's how we met. We lived close, so we went out uh, together, and that's how it all started. I've just seen yourself with your baby. Your baby is four months old. A devastating situation right now because this brain tumour is very aggressive. Radiotherapy and chemotherapy have failed, so your only hope now is to get treatment abroad. Tell us more about that and and how much it might potentially cost. Mm -hmm. He also failed um, trial vaccine at UCLH Hospital in London and at the moment we are looking at treatments abroad, um, also possibly a treatment here. There is a vaccine trial in the US that's coming into the UK, however it's only for newly diagnosed patients. So he can get onto it if the tumour tissue they took out on Monday is good enough and he can get onto it but we have to pay for it on a private uh, basis because he's not eligible for the trial. Mm. This costs around £75,000 and we can also, if this doesn't work and if we can't get on the trial, we can go to India for um, magnetic field treatment. It costs around £10,000 or we can go to... Um, treatment in uh, Houston in America it's cost around £90,000 per year it's gene targeted therapy or antineoplasm therapy so there are options they don't give guarantees but they give hope mm, absolutely of course uh, with your new baby as well you need all the hope you can yes. the support locally has been incredible so far something like what five and a half thousand pounds yes we've raised five and a half thousand pounds some of it in Poland through family and friends some of it through friends here in England and how much of a, a, a shock has this been for you? Because you just don't expect something like this to happen in your life. But when did you first realise that there might be problems here? I was um, four months pregnant when it all started. Yarek had massive headaches and we were going to doctors to see what was happening. And then it, it took months to diagnose what was happening. And then um, after a few MRIs, they found a mass in his brain 
first it, he had brain hemorrhage and then and they, they, they noticed the mass underneath. So he had emergency surgery in December and now it's back. He had another surgery just last Monday. Mm. And as a family, you just want to do all you can, whatever that option may be, whether it's in America, whether it's in India. You just want to try absolutely everything because you're desperate to keep your husband alive and, and for your child to grow up with your husband. Absolutely. She's only four months now. She needs her daddy and I need my husband. Absolutely. Let's give this uh, website address because it has been very successful for you so far. Hopefully, our listeners will go onto the website today and donate some money for you. So, can we have the website address, please? Yes. Uh, the address is www.hopeforyarek.com and Yarek is spelled J-A-R-E-K. Thank you so much for your time and all the very best for the future. Thank you very much. That's Melena there. So uh, clearly, Ian, um, the family here doing absolutely everything they possibly can. Radiotherapy, chemotherapy, that's failed in this country. But there is still hope abroad. And, of course, uh, we're urging our listeners to go to that website today. Justin, thank you very much. There's, uh, it's doing a job like this, and it kind of, you know, you get to hear all of these stories. And you just have to feel blessed for the moments you've got with your family where everything is, is okay, isn't it? You can't help but be, be, be touched by that. That was Justin Dealey, uh, who's out and about there with uh, Milena. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Breakfast. There's another 30 minutes before uh, Jonathan Vernon-Smith comes in and does his, his stuff. And on the JVS show today with... Um, oh, no, I think, that's, I think that might be a di- an old show. Is that could be from an old show. Oh, no, it could be. We'll read it out, and if it's... We'll read it out, and if he's not talking about it, you can phone up and bully him into talking about it. It'll be his fault. With April and June uh, officially declared the wettest on record, it seems that many Brits have gone off the idea of holidaying at home. The wet weather has seen a 20% increase in UK residents booking holidays abroad. JVS is going to be meeting Mike from Dunstable, who loves holidaying in the UK, but even he must be thinking again. Jonathan will be talking to Mike and asking, why would anyone want to holiday in the UK? And after 11... He'll be looking at your consumer problems. And if you've got something that you'd like the team to look at, then get in touch with the JVS show after nine o'clock. Let's get the latest travel news now with Sophie Tyler. Across beds, hearts and bucks, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. Good morning, dear listener. We're, we're going to talk about lying now. And I want you to, to give me a call. 08459 455 555. How can you tell when your partner's lying? I want all of the little telltale signs. What do they do? 08459 455 555. You've got 25 minutes to give me a call. For years, we've been told that you look at a person's eyes to find out if they're lying. If they move them to the right, it's a porky. If it's to the left, it's, they're telling the truth. But psychologist Richard Wiseman from the University of Hertfordshire says that if you really want to know if someone's lying, you need to listen to their voice. Our reporter, Serena Farrow, has asked couples in Stevenage if they know when their other half is lying. Yes. Uh, how? Hello, <laughs> you mean oh, you mean I want to reveal it right now? I don't know. Just going. Is it no, like? I can't always. Twist her head to one side. <laughs> Smile. Smile. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that very often. <laughs> it's just well, you, you get to know, don't you? Yeah. They look down, over-explain whatever it is they're trying to get across. <laughs> so would you stay still after 40 years? You still do tell the odd little park here or there? She oh, does. Yes, I, I do. do. I think it's a woman's instinct programmed in to find out yeah, if they're lying or not lies. Well, everyone says this but yeah. what about little lies when you're maybe tired and you're not tired <laughs> i don't think so i don't no. think we do no not us are you gonna agree with that yeah yeah, yeah. bend the truth a bit but not lie yeah not well lie. if he bends the truth yeah. what does he do uh, he'll exaggerate you know we can tell when our daughter's lying 
what's she like? I'll take some hints and tips. <laughs> she just is a compulsive liar. They tell you what they want, what they want you to know and maybe twist it a little bit. I love it when kids lie, because th- you're so obviously alike. You, you go into a room and there's a broken, um, a broken chair. What happened? I don't know. Did you break this chair? No. Who broke it? I don't know. It just came in. It was broken. You sure you didn't break it? No. That's kids. Kids are the worst liars. How can you tell if your partner's lying? 08459 455 555. We've got Bruce Burgess uh, from the British Polygraph Association. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning. Now, you use lie detectors. Do you use any other kind of physical things like looking at eyes or hand movements as well, or is it strictly from what you get from the machine? No, I try not to do anything like that at all, and I certainly try not to form any sort of opinion before the test. Obviously, it's a little bit difficult because your natural reaction is to think, well, this guy or this girl's lying. Um, But I only go by the chance alone. When I run a polygraph test, the results of the test are what comes out at the end of the charts when I analyze the charts, and that's the result I give. Some people are really good liars. The fact is... When a person has told the same lie over and over again, which is usually when they've come down to me, they get used to telling that lie. They actually kind of believe it. They don't believe it totally, but they don't like an actor who walks out on a stage. He's got the audience in front and the scenery behind him, and he lives apart. Yeah. So does the liar. If he's lying about any serious situation, maybe an affair or something like that, then he gets used to telling that lie, and he's pretty good at it. But the fact is, when he's attached to a polygraph and someone's looking at the inside of his body, his breathing, his heart, his pulse, sweat glands, then he activates because the sympathetic nervous system within the body knows that he's under threat. How reliable are lie detectors these days? <laughs> the lie detect- the polygraph or lie detector, as it's commonly known, is very, very reliable. It is the most reliable tool to tell if a person is lying. There's nothing else that will come close to it. Now, we give it out around 97, 98%, <clears throat> excuse me, but that is a very loose figure. It's very difficult to test mm. um, the percentage or the rate of success on polygraph. If you call a person a liar, they say you got it wrong. If you tell them you're telling the truth, they say you got it right. Um, the fact is, you can't test it. You can't put someone on a polygraph and say, lie to me and I'll see if you're lying, or tell the truth and I'll see if you're telling the truth. Why don't because they use it? Because it has to be a threat. Why don't they use it uh, in court cases? What in this country, it hasn't come about in court cases yet. And even in America, it's very difficult to get it into court. Everyone's got to agree, the judge, uh, the prosecution, the defense, and it's very difficult to get them all to agree. But the fact is that you can't put someone in prison or set someone free on the results of a test on their body reactions. That's never going to happen. Mm. It should be used as weighted evidence. Now, I tell you where we do lose out. The police in this country should use it as an investigative tool, right. as they do in America. If they have a half a dozen suspects and they polygraph them all and find one that shows deception, they can home in on that one person, save them a lot of work, you know, interrogate that person, search their homes, uh, and make sure that they've investigated that person fully before they go anywhere else. Isn't it possible, though, to beat the polygraph? Because that bloke on that teleprogram, Homeland, did it, didn't he? That was the biggest load of rubbish on polygraph that I've ever seen in my life. And they're the Americans 
who, who, where it came from. You cannot do a polygraph test like that. I mean, I watched that program and I enjoyed the program because yeah. I, I thought it was a really good story. Yeah. And, and it worked for me when they did the polygraph and the guy walked in there and said, let us get this over with and snuck the finger plates on his finger. Yeah. There is a whole process before the test, before a person is attached to the polygraph. He has to be conditioned. He has to know that if he's telling the truth, that's the result he's going to get. And also, if he's going to lie, that also is the result he's going to get. So we go through the questions with them. We go a kind of rehearsal. They know what they're going to be asked. Mm. They know the questions. They know the answers they're going to give. And I give them every chance. And I say to everybody there, if you've got a problem with any of the questions, tell me. Yes. Because if you have a problem, if you worry about the question, you will react. They do that on Jeremy Carl, don't they? Sometimes just before the, the, the thing, they change the question to say, well, yeah, I did kiss three women, but, but uh, excluding oh. those three women. Yeah, that's right. Quite often before the test, you know, you'll get an admission. Well, there was one, you know, OK, yeah. apart from that one. And, do you and do the Jeremy Kyle tests? Coming out. Sorry? Do you do the Jeremy Kyle tests? I, I did Jeremy Kyle up until three years ago. I'm semi-retired now. I need these tests in my office because I used to travel to Manchester, which is where it's filmed. Bruce, listen, I have to go because we're running out of time. Can we get Bruce on again? Because I, I, I could talk to Bruce all morning. I'm genuinely fascinated. And I should have asked the Kyle question first of all. That was Bruce Burgess, who's from the British Polygraph Association. Genuinely fascinating. Let's get him in and do a lie detector test one day, because that would be absolutely wonderful. Although I am going to stipulate which questions he can and indeed cannot ask me. <laughs> okay, before we go that. Thank you very much. Uh, if you want to tell us how... Can you tell if your partner's lying? And how do you get away with lies? 08459 455 555. Now, a court has been hearing how John Terry's teammates and former manager deny that he's racist. The Chelsea and England player is on trial over claims he racially abused Anton Ferdinand in a Premier League match last October. He denies the charge. Our reporter, Jonathan Blake, has been at Westminster Magistrate Court. Good morning, Jonathan. Morning, Ian. Uh, John Terry's teammate, Ashley Cole, gave evidence yesterday. What did he say? He did. He stood in court and he was asked about the level of abuse between football players on the pitch in general and he said that it is always there to a certain extent, but he was asked specifically about what happened between John Terry and Anton Ferdinand that day in October uh, during the match between Chelsea and QPR. He was asked whether it was banter or handbags as it was put in court. He said it kind of was, adding that we shouldn't be sitting here. He said he was in the dressing room after the match and saw the two players shake hands. Now, Earlier, it was put to John Terry that he only did that and met Anton Ferdinand after the game to smooth things over because he knew that footage of what he'd said was already being put online. Ashley Cole said that that couldn't have been the case because there was no mobile phone reception in the Loftus Road dressing room. Who else did the court hear from? Well, there were statements from several high-profile players, John Terry's teammates, including Petr Cech, Frank Lampard, Juan Mata and others, who all put their name to a statement saying that they'd never heard him use racist language. Bruce Buck, the chairman of Chelsea FC, gave evidence saying that John Terry has an uncanny mental strength that allows him to block out events in his private life on the pitch. And there was a statement from Jose Mourinho, the former Chelsea manager, which said, I am certain John Terry is not a racist. And earlier in the day, John Terry faced cross-examination? Yes, he did. The prosecution put it to him that he'd lost it on the pitch because he was annoyed that his team was struggling. Chelsea were down to nine men, of course, in that game, losing to QPR, and that he was fed up with being humiliated in public after being taunted about claims he'd had an affair with his teammate Wayne Bridges' ex-girlfriend. Uh, and he was accused of creating an elaborate flannel, as the prosecution called it, and that he'd had to stick to his story since then. John Terry denied all that and said again that he only 
uttered those words, which were interpreted as a racist insult because he was repeating them back to Anton Ferdinand, asking if that's really what he thought he had said to him. Uh, so John Terry denies the charge against him and the trial is expected to get underway later this morning with final speeches from the defence and the prosecution. That's Jonathan Blake there, who was at Westminster Magistrate Court. No doubt we'll speak to him um, perhaps tomorrow to find out the latest in the John Terry trial. Beds, hearts and bugs news. BBC Three Counties Radio. The headlines this morning on BBC Three Counties Radio. Police in Hertfordshire are investigating the theft of another Henry Moore sculpture, this time worth up to half a million pounds. The 1965 sundial was taken from the grounds of the Henry Moore Foundation in Much Haddam, Moore's former home. Back in 2005, a bronze statue worth three million pounds was taken from the grounds of the museum. David Cameron's high-speed rail plans have come under attack again from his own father-in-law. Viscount Astor has already said the HS2 network is backed largely by Northern Labour MPs who relish the thought of the beauty of the Chilterns being destroyed. In sport, the world number one Luke Donald begins the defence of his Scottish Open golf title today. The Buckinghamshire player is using the event as part of his preparations for next week's Open Championship. Hertfordshire's Tom Lewis, who starred in the Open last year as an amateur, needs a top five finish in Scotland to qualify. The weather for beds, hearts and bucks, staying dry with sunny spells but turning cloudier during the afternoon. Outbreaks of rain will arrive this evening. Top temperature around 19 degrees Celsius. We do all the big stories here at BBC Three Counties Radio and this uh, news just in. Uh, well, on yesterday's show you would have heard how five pigs are being flown from Bedfordshire to the Falkland Islands. Well, something has gone wrong. We've got John Jeffrey who's accompanying the pigs. Hello, John. Yes, hello, Ian. How are you going this morning? I'm fine, thank you. John, w- what's happened? Whereabouts are you? Well, we're, we're in Chile at the moment, a place called Punta Arenas, uh, probably about 500 miles west of the Falklands. So I'm actually on the aircraft at the moment. It's, uh, are you on the aeroplane now? Why are you in Chile? What happened? What went wrong? We, we had a big snowstorm in the Falklands. We just couldn't get in there yesterday. Um, it's cleared up now, so we're heading back over there this morning. And why, why have you picked Chile? Um, you can't go to Argentina. Of course, yes. Sorry, that was a ridiculous question and I should have realised that answer. How are the pigs coping with the journey? That's what everyone wants to know, John. They are absolutely fine. They're really laid back. Um, we've just climbed in the hold this morning, fed them their breakfast. Um, they're, they're perfect. And is, is, this, is your job just travelling around the world accompanying livestock everywhere? No, no, not specifically. Um, we're, we're cargo specialists, and this okay. one was a particularly special one. We, we, we specifically deal with the Falkland Islands. Okay, fantastic. John, uh, so you, you're leaving Chile now. You reckon you'll get there soon? Yeah, a couple of hours, um, probably three hours, and they'll be on their way to the farm. Fantastic. That's John Jeffrey there. Thank you very much. Who's accompanying the pigs across the world uh, from Bedfordshire to the Falkland Islands initially, but uh, they've ended up in Chile. What a, they're, they're, they're having a better travel experience than I've ever had. They get, it sounds like they're getting well looked after. John sounds like a top bloke who knows exactly what he's doing. They're getting fed breakfast, having a marvellous time. Never been to Chile. Wouldn't mind a little bit of Chile. Uh, we've got a statement from O2, by the way, regarding... Uh, they wouldn't come on, but we've not been able to get hold of them to come on. But as you know, there has been a, a problem with the O2 network. Um, and we have a statement from O2 that says, We can confirm that the problem with our mobile service is due to a fault with one of our network systems, which has meant some mobile phone numbers are not registering correctly on our network. Yeah, thanks. As a result, some customers are having difficulty making or receiving calls, sending texts, or using data. 
We and our central supplier have deployed all possible resources and are working through the night to restore service as soon as possible. We apologise again to customers affected and will provide further updates as soon as we can. It's not brilliant, is it? It's not brilliant. I think my phone is working. I turned it on an hour or so ago and it was working. It it, it may have dropped off again. We just don't know. I'll have another little check in a little bit. But uh, it's not fantastic, is it? It's not the best situation that we could have been in. You you have a a phone provider and you expect it to work pretty much. Is this the millennium bug 12 years late? We had BlackBerry, I think. Was Was that earlier this year or late last year when their network went off? Uh, We had the whole uh, um, NatWest banking fiasco a few weeks ago, and now this. Why is everything going wrong all of a sudden? I think we could be a little bit too reliant uh, on on technology. Tony's called in. Good morning, Tony. Hello there. Tony, what's your take on all of this? Um, Well, actually, if you turn off the 3G, if you uh, disable the 3G, you actually receive a, a telephone signal, but you taxis take ages to go and you've got no uh, internet connection oh really so hang on so did, did you do this with your phone yeah this morning yeah so you had no phone signal but you I ter- had a phone signal i had a phone signal earlier this morning right. on normal 3g network and then it, then i lost it again um and it's all over twitter at the moment that if you turn off 3g you'll get a, you'll get a telephone you'll receive and make calls but taxis take ages and uh you've got no internet connection on how annoying have you found it tony I'm self-employed and rely on my uh, phone, and uh, all yesterday afternoon I had no signal whatsoever, so obviously I've lost yesterday's work. What, what do you and, do? And mornings. I'm a courier. Right, OK, so you, you're totally reliant on your phone. People phone up and give you jobs, and you've had none of that? Ex- uh, yeah, exactly. I have my um, landline transferred to my mobile, and uh, I was out yesterday uh, morning. Um, on, I had no phone calls yesterday afternoon. And how have you, have you had any response from, from O2? Because I've tweeted them and I saw that some of their tweets yesterday were a little, they were a little bit flippant, I thought. Yeah, and they're actually, there's nothing from O2 telling people to turn off the no. 3G. I, I mean, I found this on Twitter from other people, but there's nothing from O2 telling you to turn off the 3G. Well, Tony, listen, I, I hope it doesn't affect your business too much. Thank you very much for calling in and thank you for that top tip. Uh, that's Tony who's been struggling with O2. It's not brilliant. And it's people like that. Me, I couldn't text my wife last night when I was in bed. The great scheme of things, I can get away with that. And it probably made her life a whole lot more peaceful. But Tony, it's, um, you know, it's affecting his business. Jonathan's going to be talking about this afterwards, after nine o'clock, asking, can you live without your mobile phone? We're very reliant on them. Do you remember when people would phone up uh, and, and leave a note? You say, is, 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 is Steve there? No. Uh, can you tell him that, that I called and um, I'll try him later on? Don't get any of that now. Questions, uh, moving on swiftly. Questions are being asked about why the security company G4S has failed to recruit enough staff for the Olympics. More than 3,000 troops will have to step in. This is an incredible story. Our reporter, Matt Leach, has all the details. Good morning, Matt. Morning, Ian. Where are we with this? this is, I was hearing this unfold yesterday. This is just incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is certainly some some kind of embarrassment, mm. let's put it, at least as strong as that. One newspaper headline calls it a farce. Um, you know, G4S is being paid around 
£300 million to guard the Games, but with just over two weeks to go, it says it can't guarantee it'll have enough trained staff. A company spokeswoman says it's encountered what she calls some issues in relation to workforce supply, and uh, one or two people who've been going for those jobs uh, with G4S have been speaking to the BBC. John is one of them, and he says he's been told his application won't be fully processed until after the Games are over. I applied um, about four months ago now and had an interview and everything, and screening process... I was told it could take about three months. Last week, I had an email from them telling me screening's now finished and my details are now being passed on to LOCOG. And again, they, they say here that this could take anywhere up to 12 weeks. Now, I was told that last week. In three months' time, the Olympics is going to be over, isn't it? G4S also say that they are working as hard as they can to resolve their staffing issues. So it's going to be up to the military to step in. Well, yeah, that looks like what's going to happen. I mean, uh, the UK Armed Forces had already agreed to provide 13,500 troops. Now ministers are due to give us full details in a a written statement a bit later. We expect of an additional 3,500 troops being readied to help out because of this latest problem. Now, Whitehall sources say there'll be no negative uh, impact on security at the Games. Uh, well, that's reasonable, I guess, is you've got soldiers stepping in, you would expect there not to be a negative mm. impact on security. However, the BBC's defence correspondent has learned there's been real anger within the military that they're being asked to, well, in effect, bail out this company, not least at a time when the armed forces is being downsized. Well, you would, you would think with all the cuts that are being made and the fact that a lot of these lads have just come back from Afghanistan and wherever and they've now got to go mm. and look after the blooming Mr Whippy at the, the, the Olympics. What other reactions has there been to these problems? Well, as you might expect, Ian, with a story like this, plenty of comment coming in. Uh, for example, Dame Tessa Jow speaks on the Olympics for Labour. She wants to know, I think a lot of people might, why the news has emerged so late in the day. She says it is worrying, but it's right that every step should be taken to ensure public safety. Well, it's obviously a matter of concern that this failure of G4S um, in this respect seems to have emerged. Uh, it's important that the problem is rectified immediately. And uh, therefore, I mean, it's right that uh, troops have been deployed in this way because at the end of the day, the games start in two weeks' time. The most important thing is that they are safe and secure. And finally, in a London 2012 spokesman says, security for the Games is big and complex, but we have the best brains in the security business working on this, and delivering a secure Games is everyone's number one priority. Matt, I'm, I'm guessing this is going to cost money. I would assume that G4S will be paying, paying for any uh, shortfall in this... Uh this? Have they made any well, statement about that yet? Well, you're not alone in asking that question. Uh, I think it was Keith Vaz uh, from the Home Affairs Select Committee, I, I think I've seen, if I'm right in remembering this morning, saying exactly that. Uh, he assumes that any extra costs mm. on this will be picked up by G4S. I don't think we've had that issue addressed yet in a statement either from uh, the government or the Ministry of Defence or, or from uh, G4S. And, and finally, Matt, how much are they getting paid for this? Well, I think the contract is uh, getting on towards around three hundred million pounds. <laughs> Matt, thank you very much. That's Matt Leach, our reporter there. The, listen, if you gave me three hundred million pounds, I could totally get enough people to police the Olympics without a shadow of a three hundred million pounds. I was listening to this yesterday, and with just incredulity, I could not believe what was happening.
Um, let's pick a couple of the emails and texts off the top of this pile here. Uh, Sue says, "Eyes." Oh, this is about the lies. Eyes right is imagination. Eyes. What? No, sorry. Eyes right is imagination. Eyes left is memory. Hence the lie theory. As a parent, it's useful and usually right. But I also agree about the voice. Both my kids change when they lie in voice and body language. You, kids are the worst liars. You you can totally tell when they're lying. And uh, final text from Lucy in Luton. Ian, you just have to believe in what you're saying to be a successful liar. I duped my partner for five months. He never suspected a thing. I'm a very good liar. How can how can you give me this text right at the end of the show? I want to know what happened with Lucy. Lucy, you should have called in. What were you lying to your partner for for five months? I mean, try, you can't end a show on a text like that from Lucy. I need to know more details. What has she been lying about for so long? It seems incredible. It turns out we have some very, very naughty listeners to BBC Three Counties Radio. I shall keep probing. Oh, I will keep probing. That's it from me. I'll be back tomorrow at nine, uh, nine o'clock, I wish, six o'clock. Stick around, though, because after the news, uh, we will have Jonathan Vernon-Smith, who is always worth a listen. I'll be back tomorrow at six. Ta-ta. Getting beds, hearts and bugs talking. This is BBC Three Counties Radio.